0: What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Richard Turner. If you don't know Richard, he's got some of the most sensitive hands in the world, and he can do things with a deck of cards that nobody else can do. He's a recent fooler on Penn & Teller's show, which is no surprise, because he's been practicing gambling and cheating techniques since he was a small child. Not to mention that many of the techniques he uses were concocted in the mind of Di vernon the greatest close-up magician of the 20th century as a challenge to see if they were even possible richard was in town promoting the documentary about his life and his pursuit of perfection at the card table i had the opportunity to see the film twice and it's beautiful and funny and weird and touching and i loved it it's so moving so inspiring That whole team did a phenomenal job, and I strongly encourage you to go to DeltMovie.com to see when it's screening near you. Richard and I talked about getting started as a childhood cheater, the discipline necessary to practice slights 16 hours a day, as well as become a martial arts master, the competitive nature of Vernon's castle environment, and honestly, one of the things I found most fascinating was how Richard actually sees the world, which we discuss near the end of the episode. I've been studying Richard's work at the card table for about half of my magical career, so it was such an honor and a pleasure to sit down with him, and I know you guys are going to love this episode. If you love magical thinking and want to show your support, head over to patreon.com slash magicalthinking. Patreon helps me get better equipment for the show, as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. I'm constantly updating the page with new content, and I'm currently doing a series called The Art of the Stage, in which I am creating an audiobook of a small treatise written on The Art of the Stage presentation and elocution from 1914. You can check that out there. I also have tips on style and fashion. You can chat with me one-on-one, and I'm going to bring back Book Club. A lot of people suggested that I bring back Scotch and Books, or Dan and Davis Book Club on YouTube, but I think that would be a wonderful addition to the Patreon. So if you were into that and you're excited about that, head over to patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N.com slash magical thinking to support the show. Of course, if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com. And if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out the Ambassador Program on Art of Magic. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print. And you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly. If you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. Get into the episode and let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. If you have any questions, email them to me and I'll respond in a voice message like this for everyone to hear. I'll put that up on Patreon, and you can find it there. Anyway, get into Richard Turner's episode. It is phenomenal. It was such a pleasure. He's got a lot of beautiful things to say. I know you're going to love it. Richard Turner, enjoy.
1: Well, yeah,
0: we're 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 going to start now. (laughs) Um, Go play. (laughs) Well, yeah, so traditionally... I just hit recording and we just go. So and we just yak away. Yeah, yeah, there's no intro or anything like that. Okay. But this is sort of the intro that people are gonna hear and 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 know about because it's already happening. Um, okay. But yeah, so I just if you don't mind, if you would repeat uh, what you were just talking about doing, you know, crazy amount of shows. Oh, okay. Tell we win. No, oh, right. We're
2: going.
1: We're, we are. We're live. In it.
2: Are we alive? Are we live, Elliot?
0: We are live. Well.
2: I'm Richard Turner and you are Elliot. That's correct. <laughs> that way we both know who we, who we each are and we can address each other uh, with those particular titles.
0: Thank you, Richard. I appreciate the introduction. This is very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: well, yeah, I've been uh, performing for four, since '72 is when I, I joined a theater company. And uh, with the cards, I performed for like 27 years, five to seven days a week. And then I actually had one run of 2,190 days in a row. That's performing seven days a week for six years <laughs> straight. And my last long run was uh, 440 days in a row. And then I decided, well, it's time to hit, slow down a little bit. <laughs> and now, but now, uh, now I, I have more fun now. And it seems like I'm doing more than I was
0: before. I... <laughs> I can't even imagine working that many shows and doing that much shuffling. <laughs> and, oh, I know. It's a lot of shuffling.
2: And the thing is, you know, people say, how do you stay fresh, you know, after doing tens of thousands of shows? And what keeps me fresh is the energy that comes from my audience. If you have a good audience and the audience is going, what the heck? What, what? You know, they're, and they're reacting and they're. Uh, you know, showing some sort of emotion and they have some kind of emotional c- connection with you. You know, that energizes a performer, which is something I'm sure I don't have to explain to you. But, you know, I do get that question a lot. How do you sound so fresh after doing so many shows? And that's it. The, the excitement from the audience, you know, that just feeds an entertainer.
0: Well, over the years, how have you developed your uh Set. I mean, like, what was the let's just hone in on the Magic Castle for a minute, and because you've been performing there for like forty years, 40 years <laughs> which is amazing. Um, how has your performance set changed over those four decades?
2: It has. It uh, as the years progressed, I would learn and create more gambling-related moves, slides, and effects. And my interest, obviously, was in the gambling area, and that's what people most know me as: as a card mechanic, mm-hmm. different than a card magician. Magicians obviously do the card work for the purposes of fooling, wowing, entertaining. Uh, we a card mechanic. The original and initial purpose is to take your money at the card table <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> for Ill- illicit reasons. And uh, uh, but that was what I, I grew up with, you know, playing cards. I was the oldest. I didn't like to lose, so I started creating ways so that I didn't lose. And um, giving a little backstory, you know, it started off with a, a book that was read to me, Erdnase, expert at the card table, S.W. Erdnase. Everyone's familiar with it. And uh, even though I didn't get all of it, and it was a, I didn't get the illustrations, it was enough to give me the concepts for bottom deal, second deal, stacking, and, and, and certain shifts and so on. Uh, and anyway, so then I, uh, I, when I turned 21, that's really uh, what changed my direction. That was because that was the year I met Diverne in 1975. And he just took a liking to me and he started challenging me. And so my show, to get to your initial question, the original question, you know, how has it evolved? It was all related to gambling gambling uh, moves slights techniques effects and then as I my skill sets continue to increase I like to make myself my uh, my show in the the effects that I do or the demonstrations that I do each one a little more impossible than the one before and so I would uh, come up with something and I go ah oh, there's one particular thing that I do is when I and I it's one of the favorite things that I do in my show, and to give you just a quick, what the audience sees from their point of view is, I'll let them shuffle and cut a deck of cards, choose the poker game they want to play, say seven card stud, choose the number of players they want in the game, say they want five, and choose which player they want to have win. And I will let them shuffle, take their cards back. They want five players, say third position, and I will Deal a pat hand in that position, and I will stop every time I go around the table, and let somebody take the deck of cards and shuffle them more, and take any cards out and just hand me any random stack from the deck each time. So I'm working with just whatever they give me uh, as I'm going around at the, and then dealing at the selected position. And uh, sometimes when I really push the envelope, I'll even let them tell me what hand they want. Do they want a straight? You want a flush? You want four of a kind? You want a full house? What do you want? And, of course, that that is really, first of all, I'm swinging without a net. <laughs> That's swinging with a bunch of daggers on the ground below you. So <laughs> you're going to really get shish kebab if you fall. And so I, I will do that when I have you know magicians around and I really want to uh, push the envelope. Um, but anyway, I, I, and I came up with a, a series of uh, ways of doing my moves mm-hmm. and then combining some other techniques in that and... I would tell professor, what do you think about doing this and this? And I remember just distinctly sitting at the Magic Castle, the left side of the bar, and mm-hmm. he was sitting at the second stool, and I was standing next to him, and I explained it to him, and he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll use the little professor, a little fake <laughs> professor actually. goes, Richard, you can't go. It won't work. It won't work. Your hands can't be that sensitive, and you and you break rhythm. Your your brain cannot respond that fast. It won't work. It can't be done. <laughs> and I and I literally I sat there. and I was depressed. I was really bummed out for a good ten minutes. I just stood there going, "Darn," he says, "It can't be done." And I'm, and I'm getting ready to do a show in in the in the room doing it, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me. Hold it, but I can do it. And I said, Professor, come watch my show. And he comes in, and then afterwards he goes, Richard, what the hell were you doing in there? I don't <laughs> understand what the hell you were doing. I said, remember when you said you can't do this and this and this? Well, that's what I'm doing. He goes, well, I don't understand how the hell you can do that. <laughs> and then for the next 18 months, everybody, Max, Max, come watch this, watch this. <laughs> you know, whoever happens to be within... 10 feet of us, he would call over and say, shuffle the car, shuffle it. How many players do you want? Where do you want to shuffle? Watch it, watch this, watch it, watch the car. Shuffle it again, shuffle it. And over and over for a good 18 months, two years, and finally two years later he goes, I still don't understand how the hell you can do that. <laughs> anyway, but the, my point is that I will come with, up with ideas to take and push the envelope and make it more and more and more uh, difficult and even though it's not magic from the point of view of the spectator, and the magicians in particular, but uh, the, the audience, you know, it's very magical because they're like looking at something. There's no logical explanations they can put together and be able to figure out. Well, how is that even conceivable? The person's stopping, grabbing the deck, and then shuffling it some more. In fact, I just did Penn & Teller's uh, live show about three weeks ago. And I, I told her, I'm doing something special for them. And, uh, and, that, and I just did what I just described to you. And uh, they go, oh, you just fooled us even worse. Every move you did fooled us. And, and so they really, they really appreciate it. So that was really fun. Um, but that, that, so again, and I'm taking a long way around uh, explain how my act has evolved. It, it was re- I, I don't want to be a master of a couple things, or, or let's put it another way, have uh, 200 different effects or things that I do in my show. I want the things that I do in my show to be as perfect as possible. So my act really has more evolved in its level of difficulty and smoothness, smoothness and execution more so than it has in its quantity of, uh, of things that I do. Even though uh, if you bought my DVDs, you know, I have hundreds and hundreds of moves just on my one DVD, uh, sh- uh, Science of Shuffling and Stacking, 65 different methods of how to false shuffle cut and deal the cards, or uh, shuffle cut and stack the cards. Um, so I'm constantly working on, on anything that I've heard out there. But and again, back to my show. My show has very, very much stayed constant over the past 30 years in particular. But uh, the, the, f- you know, 40 years ago, it was still uh, definitely a work in progress, and taking things out and going, that's not going to work, and that's not as good, and then. <laughs> I would come up with better ways of, of doing things. And, and some of the things that I did back then, I wish I could remember. I remember, <laughs> I remember going with, to Ed Marlowe, and uh, Ed says, Richard, show me that. Do that again for me. Show me that. I want to see those, that double shift that I did one in each hand, and I transposed uh, two different cards, and, and I... And to this day, I cannot remember what I did or how I did it. <laughs> and there was a, a few other things that I did back then that I've, like I said, I've evolved. But I would love to go back and, and see those, find them, which there's no place to find them because we didn't have video so much back then, and, uh, and remember what I did. Like one of the things that I did, and I remember parts of it, is I would have somebody pick a number of players And I would deal two pat hands uh, after they choose uh, four kings to one hand and four aces to another hand. And I can't remember my sequencing, and and of course it required obviously a lot of false dealing Uh to make it happen. But I can't remember the sequence on the initial stack to get get it started. And of course the reason why that one got pushed out is because now I take it and I let them shuffle and cut and choose all the circumstances and still do the same thing. But you know, there's still things I did back in the 70s that I, I would like to remember what I did, but I can't remember. <laughs> in fact, I don't remember 80% of what I know now. Yeah. You've forgotten more than most people will ever learn. Yeah, I, I, 80% <laughs> of what I know, I have to go back to look at some of the DVDs or shows. I go, oh, I forgot all about that. How, <laughs> how did I do that? You know,
1: anyway.
0: How often do you do that? Go back and look at your old material? Very, very, very rare. Because I'm not—I'm just not one for
2: watching things. Because it just doesn't do me a whole lot of good, and it's boring as all get out. (laughs) And uh, so I very, very rarely. Okay,
0: I'm just curious about uh, your creative process. Do you like? Does an idea strike you, or is it something that's honed over? How I come up with what? Usually, what I
2: have is a goal. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to get around the cut card, or. I have an objective, and so I figure out how do I beat that barrier? You know, an <clears throat> objective meaning the casinos, this is now what they have put in play to help cut out or cut down the ability to do certain things, and so that becomes my goal. So I have a goal, and then I figure out how to achieve the goal. So I start from a, from an end result and then go backward, and uh, sort of like, um, I don't know, I want to say retrofit. Well, it
0: sounds the same as a magician who takes uh, an effect or an impossible thing and then tries to come up with the method mm-hmm. to, to achieve that apparent right. effect, right?
2: Right, exactly. That's a, a very, very similar.
0: So then how what, what would be the difference then between a mechanic trying to beat that goal and a magician trying to beat that goal?
2: Just different goals. One's related to the card table. You know, how do you get around when the deck is cut? You know, put a but something that everybody understands. You know, my, you know I have uh, 35 different methods, I think, in my shifts-offs on how to undo the cut when the deck is cut, nullifying the cut. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's the standard ways that, you know, hops and uh, two-hand shifts, one-hand shifts that are out there. And then I would, like, uh, the Erdne's one-hand shift. You know, he had this really bizarre way of holding the deck with the ring finger underneath the deck and that uh, uh, yeah, the ring finger underneath the deck, and you know, it was just held in a very awkward position. Mm-hmm. I thought that's unnatural. So then I came up with my, you know, my one-hand shift, which is like this. I start and stop in the same position. You know, you see what I'm showing. I'm showing Elliot as we speak, <laughs> so he can understand. Versus, you know, you know, a starting position like this, which yeah. is not a natural position. So I'm, uh, and, and in this position, I can just roll up my sleeves and I'm ready to deal and uh and the deck has been uncut so i you know i would analyze how can i make that more natural and and still accomplish it because the thing about it one hand shift is you can do it with your hand completely upside down so <laughs> i've I never just, seen that before <laughs> so i just turned my hand upside down and did a one hand shift when i cut of course they'll fall out of your hand so yeah. one hand shift you have uh complete control of the halves in whatever position you want to hold them now i'm doing the shift with my hand vertical sideways and, um, so anyway, that you know, I would think about how to do that. And then I would think about how to shift if I want to a chef exact number of cards. So you're like, okay, I want to shift just five cards. Mm-hmm. See, One, two, three, four, five. Is that face up? Yep. So I just turned a card face up on the deck and, uh, I then shifted from the bottom, exactly five cards from the bottom to the top using that same method for the one hand shift. And, and so, you know, what I did is I figured out how, how to, I'll just say, do the reverse of a pinky count. I do an index. I can, I can just run my index finger up the deck and go up 20, 10 cards, 20 cards, whatever number I want, and, uh, and shift that number of cards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that, that's, that's what I would do is I'd have an objective, like, right there, I'll shift 10 cards. thing. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five,
0: six, seven, how quickly eight. can you? I don't want to get too much into method, oh, just generally. Gotcha. Yeah. But how quickly can you index count? Uh, I mean, like, on
2: certain things, I can do it zero from one to fifty-two in one second. Wow. <laughs> you know, two, two seconds sometimes. You know, it depends on you know, when it, you know. You've seen me do that in yeah. my show. Yeah. You know, that's part of my show. So I've I've got it down where you someone can give me any number one to fifty-two. And I can get there with my different, my methods within one to two seconds.
0: That's incredible. (laughs) Well, so let's go back to the beginning. um, And when you were getting started with the cards, I'd have to imagine that, well, actually, when I was getting started, and this is true for a lot of magicians, uh, you know, your parents, uh, your mom in particular, or my mom in particular, got real sick of watching Car tricks. <laughs> how what was how, how was it getting started uh, with for my you? Family? Yeah, oh, with your
2: family. My sister Deborah, she mm-hmm. was uh, next in age to me. Uh, she would be my victim if you would. <laughs> and my sister Lori, she still calls it calls it holding her hostage she says, oh, he would hold so me funny. hostage. He would make me watch over and over and over. And I just, I just, you know, I would get so frustrated. I don't know what you're doing. And, and, you know, <laughs> and so she still calls it hold a hostage. And we used to play how I would practice is, you know, we were very, very poor, came from a very poor family. My, my dad, you know, he was a uh, welder by trade. Then as the years went on, he became a, you know, respected uh, engineer, but uh, the place he worked for worked. Got the, uh, the things, the ideas he came up with. They got the rights to it. Um, but anyway, we grew up in a very, very poor place. We had, mm-hmm. in fact, the house we grew up in was so poorly constructed it was condemned and torn down. And uh, so uh, we would play for M and M's. We'd have, and the most valuable were the red. and the least valuable were the brown. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so. Uh, and I would come up with I'd, I, I would sit there and by myself I'd play hand after hand after hand deal them out deal them out and it was five card draw poker that is what we played back then okay and um, and sometimes five card stud but it was mainly five card draw and I would note that if I had one extra card in there how many more times I won that one card made that much difference so that was one of the, some of the first things that I started figuring out as a little boy uh, How old were you? Seven, eight, uh, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, okay. all those ages. Okay. But starting at about seven.
0: Okay. Was, and this was before Expert at the Car Tape? This was before Expert. Okay. Yeah, that, that, cool. came,
2: <laughs> that came when I was 11.
0: Mm. So, okay. Yeah. So, seven years old, you're starting to hustle your family. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, <all> big
2: time. <laughs> uh, uh, all the time. And the thing is, I was not even discreet. A professional <laughs> hustler. A professional hustler will cheat once, twice, three times in an evening. I had to win every hand, you know, so, and, uh, and all my friends would go, we don't know what you're doing, but we know you're cheating somehow, and because uh, they, sometimes they just get so frustrated, and my sister, Deborah, you know, she said, my brother's so good, he never loses, <laughs> and so that just inspired me on, so her girlfriends would come over, cute ones, oh, and, nice. uh, <laughs> and uh, so I had to impress them, you know, and um, and so that just made me want to figure out more and more ways to continue to enhance this <laughs> minuscule reputation I had as a little elementary school kid. And my dad, who was wonderful, you know, he, uh, he supported me all the way down the line, uh, all the way up the line, I guess you'd say, because I got older. So. <laughs> and, uh, and I grew up calling, hearing, hey, yo, cheat, because he's from the hills of Tennessee, and that's what he called, hey, yo, cheat. But and it meant it with affection, of course. And so that uh, I called myself Richard Turner the cheat, for many many years, for decades, and uh, probably came from my father going, "Hey yo, cheat," <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, go
0: ahead. <laughs> well, and then what about your mom? How was she? Uh,
2: she was kind of indifferent to everything, mm. and uh, she she was just she was just indifferent. It okay, uh, she. Didn't really care one way or the other, and didn't. She just didn't want to be involved with, with most stuff.
1: So oh, okay. A different,
2: but your dad
0: was a saint. Yeah, he was. Yeah, <laughs> he was
2: a he was a saint. He, yeah, he was a. Uh, my my sister and my brother. We all say we couldn't have had a better
0: dad. That's amazing. Yeah, he was great. And I, I, it's so, it's so important. <laughs> it was for me anyway to have, uh, a supportive. Group of people in my life I'm glad even though you were holding your sister hostage, your family seems to have <laughs> oh yeah oh
2: they all love it and they they love it and they loved uh, uh, as the years went and uh, attention and then then the you know the I guess you'd say reputation or the uh, attention that I started getting you know they all have uh, loved it and, and followed it and been in some ways been a part of it even if it wasn't actually there but you know it was it was their brother their whatever and so yeah yeah they uh they were very supportive very supportive and very fun and then when did when did you get into martial arts i started martial arts march 5th 1971 i was 16 a little over 16, a little over 16 and a half years old and i had you know Rebelled over the years before. I guess we may as well bring up the subject. Obviously, most people know I don't see, Mm -hmm. and I started losing my sight at nine. Uh, My sister Lori and I—we both got scarlet fever. She was five, and I was nine, and we don't know if that's the what the cause, because people that get scarlet fever, they usually they'll lose their hearing, or they might lose their brain. And I was just recently in, at Abbott's where uh, Blackstone Sr. and Blackstone Jr. and Blackstone Jr. Jr., they're all buried mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, Michigan, Michigan Colton, Michigan. And one of the persons there, he lost his sight one the, from scarlet fever. He went uh, blind from scarlet fever. And I thought, well, there's another case. Anyway, so we both got scarlet fever. And for me, it was like, uh, as it was for my sister, I'm watching... On the chalkboard, I'm in fourth grade, and uh, the 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 teacher's writing uh, figures on the board, and everything just was a fuzz. And what the heck? And I thought it was my imagination at first, and and I just all of a sudden it was like someone took the the, the chalk, what do you call those erasers, Eraser, yeah. and just kind of smeared the chalk around. Mm-hmm. It was just a a, blur, a mess. And uh, and then I looked at my book, and all of a sudden I'm looking at my fractions in my book, and they're just a blur. Then I said, uh, Mrs. Gaston, uh, I, I can't see. If something's wrong, I, I'm having trouble seeing. So she sent me to the nurse. And the uh, nurse thought I was just looking for an excuse to get out of class mm-hmm. at first. And
0: You seem yeah. like the type. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But, uh,
2: actually, actually, at that time, I was too afraid to. Oh, okay. But uh, uh, not saying that I, if I could figure out a way of getting out of it, I would do it. Because <laughs> there were... There was a time when i I'm back in first grade. I'm backing up. Another story. We have plenty of time, so <laughs> you guys listening, roll with the punches here. First grade, my next-door neighbor, Debbie Harris, we had this big mountain of sand, and there was this gushy stuff in there. I thought, oh, this is what they make clay out of. I'll turn and give this to my teacher, and she'll give me some clay for it. Not realizing it was cat crap. <laughs> it was cat poop, so I took a, all of it that I could gather. And her dad was trying to get it to my head. That's not clay. that's not clay, you know, that's not cat crap. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And so I emptied out my lunch, took my pile of cat crap, put it in my lunch pail, went to school, and then sitting, right, standing right across from me in line was, was Diane Woodward, and I hated her because she wore one of those Mar- Margaret dresses, like on Dennis the Menace. Margaret had this dress look like a, an umbrella. Just went straight out to the side, and it, it for some reason, just bugged the heck out of me. <laughs> and I thought, what's better, Clay, or nailing Diane Woodward? So I took all my crap out of the my thing, and I. Heaved it at her and just plastered her full of cat crap. <laughs> and then, of course, that one I got sent to the office for. And now, now we're jumping back ahead. Here's, we're continuing on with the story, <laughs> which was in fourth grade. And the, te- the, the nurse says, uh, Ricky, they call me Ricky, Uh oh. What direction is the E point? Back then, they just had E's. They didn't have a chart with letters. It was just E, which direction is the E pointing? And, and, uh, and she started somewhere on the bottom, and I couldn't see it. And then she kept going up and up and up until she was like the third, third row, third or fourth row from the top. And that's where I could start seeing the directions. And she went third row down, and then, of course, the fir- first one is just one big giant E.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
2: was not a problem. And she said, there's something wrong. And then they went, and they had... Uh, all kinds of different tests testing Mm. and at first they thought it was just I needed glasses but it was not correctable because whatever happened uh, started the macula which is the center part of the retina to degenerate and so it started with the center part of the eye just started like someone poured acid in it and just started dissolving and as the uh, and so at first there was a hole just so picture wherever you look there's a hat in front of your face. Wherever you turn your head, there's a hat blocking your view. So if I wanted to see you, I'd have to look out of the corner of my eye because the forward vision has, has, was a big hole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, then, then the rest of the vision around it, uh, uh, the blood vessels started uh, popping. or I, They have some medical way of explaining it, but the blood sure. vessels that fed blood to the retina we're not getting the blood there, so the rest of the retina uh, started going bad. There was no center vision, but the other part uh, dropped in its uh, uh, acute, acuity uh, really quick from 2020 was his normal vision to by the t- about about two years later to 20, over 400. And 2,200 is what's considered legally blind. Wow. And uh, so it was now like 2,400. And so, I, and, I, and I, that stuck with me for a number of years—2,400, 2,450—and 2400, then it slowly would continue to degenerate. Um, now, now here we go, audience. We're now trying to figure out what. Is this 63 year old brain trying to tie together from an original question from Elliot that now I don't remember? But I had to start this to, to, to bring ourselves to the point that he asked me five minutes ago. So, since we have time, what was the original question? Because this, evo- this evolved into something else.
0: <laughs> Martial arts. Martial arts. Bingo. Is
2: this guy good or what?
0: <laughs> How did you remember that? I, oh. have a, I have a notepad in front of me. Oh, t-
2: Cheating, cheating. I'm cheating. He has crib notes, crib notes. Okay.
0: That sounds like the pot
2: calling the kettle black. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that's exactly what it is. But this is not a black kettle. What color am I? I'm blue. I you are know. blue. Okay, I think that's what my wife said. Yeah. <laughs> not enough oxygen, so that's why I'm blue. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> so. You know, I'm given a lot of background here. I know. Um, anyway, the, I was sh- shipped off to a school that had what's called a VH room. VH stood for visually handicapped. Nowadays, it's visually impaired. That's politically correct. Right? Back then, it was visually handicapped, mm-hmm. and that is not politically correct today. And I hated that word handicapped, and uh, be, uh, you know, because I just I, I I just didn't like it. And the VH, the guy that ran the VH department was a guy named Ed Bryan. Wonderful man. He, we became, we stayed friends for 45 years till his death about four years ago. And he would come to the, he he came to the castle every week I was there for almost 35 years. Wow. And, uh, he was an attorney and he gave up law practice or he used his law practice for the betterment of those that were visually impaired. And, uh, he's the one that taught me, uh, critical thinking puzzles. He had all these three dimensional puzzles. Uh, and he was also an amateur magician, and he did, you know, turn stack of nickels and dimes, cut and restored string, and and things like that. So he continued to foster that fascination with magic, and and uh, and in my case, the you know, the the gambling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fooling people, in other words. And then he had an assistant named Mrs. Smith, who at that time I thought must be, oh, not a day over 150, <laughs> but not a day under 150 either. And uh, she was just one, just a miniature pile of wrinkles, nice <laughs> as all get out. Um, but, you know, a kid's point of view, she could have been, well, she probably was, probably maybe around 70 or 80. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, she had this big old 7 inch reeled reel tape recorder that she didn't use anymore. And, uh, you know, seven-inch, that means each reel was seven-inch. So it, was a, it weighed probably half as much as I did at the time, <laughs> if not more. And she's the one that, uh, uh, you know, I recorded parts of uh, Expert at the Card Table. How did she get a hold of that book? Nickel at uh, a gr- uh, garage sale. Oh. Just, just, it was a, she thought it was just a magic book on cards. She didn't know she was teaching an elementary school kid how to cheat at cards. <laughs> and, um, and then she let me borrow it. And I had it for quite some time for months. And, uh, I would at night, the headphones back then, we didn't have padded, 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 padded headphones like we do today. Yeah. They were solid. it was a metal, kind of metal, just one big hunk. And I tried, I would listen to this stuff while I laid in bed to get it into my head. And, uh, Anyway, that's kind of a little side story. But the kids, the, 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 normal, the, side, the normal kids at the school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they always kind of teased us in the VH, VH department. My friend Ruben Corral, he was like three years older than me, but we were in the same grade because he was from Mexico. And so he started school late because they didn't have facilities uh, for, for the visually impaired uh, uh, in Mexico. And he was my bud, and you know, and he was literally twice my size. because I was a little <laughs> runt, and uh, and I and he would tell you that you know we'd be out we'd be out in the middle of the field, and I'd say Reuben, take a card. We were, we were in the back of the class. We hated music, and so I'm sitting there doing playing cards with him, doing different card tricks and uh, and stuff, and uh, and that was kind of an sense of an empowerment. But at the same time, the other kids would go, "Hey, Magoo, how many fingers am I holding up?" And they always had to flip the bird in front of your face. And that was just that was just the common thing. They all, every not everybody, but a lot of kids would do that. They just I don't know why, why they think that's so cool. And they even do that today. You know, some little kid will come up and they have to, "How many fingers am I holding up?" Um, anyway, and that just ticked me off because when I was Backing up, five years old, I, I had a, I was very artistically inclined, mm-hmm. and I actually did a, a, picture from a National Geographic scene underwater, and it was in a finger painting class, and the teachers, you know, I had a, it was a, you know, the base and the coral and the, and the seaweed and a big shark and jellyfish and some angelfish, and I did all this on this uh, with finger painting as a five-year-old. And uh, everyone else, they're just smearing the things, getting it all over the table and faces. And, <laughs> and the teacher goes, you know, she had an assistant. Come here and look what little Ricky did, you know. And there's, you know, and they were just all impressed. And then in first grade, I was the best artist. Second, third, fourth grade, then you know, uh, and then all of a sudden the vision started going south. And uh, and I'm not able, I'm, I'm losing my ability to paint. Then it was when I was and then the fifth grade year because they had no facilities. I had, I really did nothing but. Are uh, crafts, and spelling. That's really all I did for the entire fifth, my fifth grade year. I didn't have to do the uh, math and the history and all the other stuff, I just had to do things. And then the, obviously then the next year I was sent off to the school, like I said, where they had the VH room huh. and had facilities. Um, uh, but then I get there and nobody knows me there. And I, of course my identity at that time came from my artistic talents. Mm-hmm. The card stuff, that was all behind the scenes. You know, that was covert. The art art, art artistry. You know, my family, my parents, both my mom and dad, were very proud of my ability to go paint beautiful sailboats and uh, farm scenes and just the different things I did at that time. And uh, but now, all of a sudden, I'm I'm losing that ability. And there was a girl named Sharon who was the one that everybody said, "Oh, she's the best artist in the school." And now I'm no longer the best artist, and so I was, you know, that that was causing me to you know not feel so good about myself, and I was kind of mad about it. And and then Ruben, my friend Ruben Corral, um, he had no artistic ability, and he scribbled, you know? And he got more attention, and it was because they were really teasing him. And so I thought, well, if he's gonna get attention from scribbling, I'm gonna scribble worse. So instead of going from a, a good artist, mm-hmm. I went into a scribbler, although I did have one crafts class with a guy named Sam Cumby, and he, uh, I did a, a, st- a, a sculpture, which I still have sitting in my office today, that was actually very, very good. It was a monk. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was... Anyway, other than that, the nose is chipped now and one of the ears is chipped. But, uh, <laughs> uh, that was... I got an A in that project. But, but that was three-dimensional rather than two-dimensional. Sure. And uh, so... Uh, anyway, so... Uh, I... I, I what lost my identity, if you would, of, yeah. you know, it was sculpture and then the kids teasing. And then I met a boys club. I met a boys club art competition. It was California statewide. And I um, uh, you know, I, was doing, I was sitting there and, and this time I, my nose was like two inches away from my canvas and I was doing a painting of three vases on a table with the light coming from one side, so I had proper shadowing, and, you know, to give the, the vases the proper proper lighting and, and three dimensional look. And it won, it won first place. Wow. And uh, um, and then uh, the guy's name was Gary, and he's the one that first started calling me Mr. Magoo. He was the art teacher, but he he because there was a cartoon at that time. I was starting. Uh, Acus, uh, I can't remember his first name. Uh, called Mr. Magoo, a, a sight impaired guy that just kind of goes through life running over things and not realizing what he did. And uh, but anyway, I won first place. But after I got my, uh, I won, mm-hmm. these two boys came up and they uh, they started to hey hey blind boy how many figures am I holding up you know and they started doing that thing and then the other kid picked the wallet out of my back pocket and then he holds it up in front of my face hey Magoo look over here got any money, Magoo? You going to buy us a hot dog, Magoo? And then I grabbed, tried grabbing for my wallet. And as soon as I grabbed for it, he threw it over my head behind me where his friend was behind me waiting for it. Mm -hmm. And then I turned back around and they, so they went back and forth so I couldn't get it. And then they, I started chasing after them and the other kid jumped on my back and they drove me to the ground and, uh, and one kicked me in the ribs and then they ran off laughing and saying, thanks for the hot dog. But they actually said, thanks for the hot dog, Magoo, hot dogs. And I had three bucks in there. And at that time, $3 was a mass fortune. <laughs> and that was every penny I had. And, uh, and to lose three bucks, I just, I, I, I was, I have to say, I was crying and I was mad. And, and at that time, my favorite show on TV was The Green Hornet. And it was starring Bruce Lee. It was one of the first shows he was on. He played Cato. And this guy could kick somebody head high. Whoa, is that ever cool? And I one day I'm going to learn karate, and I'm going to kick in your faces. And so now I'm all that long direction, everybody, just to get back to (laughs) Elliot's first question, how'd you start karate? And now that I think about it, I'm not there yet. (laughs) Because that that led to other rebellion. I I just rebelled against my family, school, all authority, Got involved with the drug scene and uh um, I uh and I at that and unfortunately my drug period was short-lived, it was from the ages of 13 to 16 and a half, uh a month before I started karate. And uh the uh, and I did just about everything under the sun. I just there's a, I do have a ter- ter- certain type of personality that mm-hmm. whatever I do, I always take things to the extreme. Yeah. And uh, my drug dealing partner was a guy named Doug Ferguson, mm-hmm. and he would compel me and almost intimidate and push me into playing cards with other drug dealers, either try to trick them. I had some different tricks that I would do, mm-hmm. to, you know, con, it was like circus cons, to get their money or to, to play hands of poker, and, uh, or sometimes it was a gin rummy and some other games, and get their money. and. And Doug himself ended up dying of hepatitis from dirty needles.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, and then two dozen of my other friends over the years died from accidents, suicide, hepatitis, like I said, overdose and murder. Wow. And, uh, and then one day, Doug and our supplier named BT thought I cheated him, and I had not cheated him. And uh, so they decided they're going to kill me with a hot shot. They mixed up. Rum. They got us. they a big old spoon, mm-hmm. and you, you bend it so it lays flat on the table. Uh, you, know, you bend the handle so it lay, the thing lays flat. Otherwise, it'll the stuff will fall out. Yep. And they took rum out of the co- out of the cupboard. They mixed it in coffee, cocoa, and heroin, and they mixed it all up. And BT had made back then. We didn't have needles. Mm-hmm. They, didn't, they didn't have this needle giveaway program. <laughs> we had to make our own what we called kits. And what we would do is we would take an eyedropper, and then for and then you those bowls of fruit, that okay. You would you know, the plastic fruit. They'd have the oranges and bananas, and the grapes were made out of rubber. And you've got to make sure you get the soft rubber because then you you take that rubber, uh, that rubber grape, and then we would push it on the end of an eyedropper, uh-huh. and then you know, you use thread to make sure to have it secure, and then you'd find a point it was what we called it back then a needle. And you would secure it on. And once again, you'd secure it on with, a, with some thread. And, uh, and Tom, big T, BT, had made this extra large eyedropper. So it was, a, it was bigger than normal. And uh, they, like I said, they cooked up this concussion. They tied me off, put a belt around my uh, left arm and uh, shot it into my veins. And the, when that heroin cocktail hit my heart, Yeah, I started going into convulsions. I was literally gasping for (laughs) air. Yeah, of course, I grew up with asthma, so I was was literally gasping, and my body went into convulsions, and I was like like a worm on a hot plate. I was literally just bouncing off the floor. Wow. And then right then, BT's girlfriend, Lainey, comes home, and it was actually her apartment that we were in, and she's banging on the door. He had it locked, and she says... Tommy, let me in, let me in. And he goes, she can't see this. Get him out of here. And so they each grabbed me by the ankle and drugged me across the apartment to the back bedroom window where they opened up the window. They both hefted me out and threw me out the window and I crashed the concrete down below and they left me there to die. And when I came to, I slowly crawled to the apartment complex laundry room and I'm propped up against a washing machine, and this, uh, this guy comes in, I don't know who he was, I, I, I just, all I hear is a voice, saying, yeah. he put on my lap a little, one of those little cardboard fold-out things you get from a fast food that you put a hamburger in mm-hmm. and fry and coke in and had a hamburger and a soda in there. And he said, eat, and he said, the only way you can get free from drugs is, from, is with God. And I said, I've gotta quit or I'm gonna end up dead. Like so, some others, so many others. And so I just resolve, I'm going to quit. And especially after they just tried killing me.
1: Yeah.
2: And the next morning, okay, after I made a resolve resolved, I was going to quit. I get a call from one of our friends, the one I played cards with and would just totally fascinate her with how I always won, always won. <laughs> and uh, her name is Linda Hahn. She's now dead now, too, from uh, too much abuse. And uh, uh, she said, hey, little Rick. Uh The Fantastic Voyage is on tonight. It was a movie about these, they miniaturize a submarine thing, and they send this, these people into this guy's body to go try to fix something in his heart. And uh, The Fantastic Voyage is on tonight. Let's get some angel dust and watch it together. And she said, stop at Wales Park and see if there's anybody dealing dust there. So I went up to these three people and asked if they had any dust, and they said, that's something better. And I said, what's that? And they said a personal relationship with the creator of everything you see. And I said you're just the people I want to talk to. You and tell me what you know. And the next thing they had me. Next day I was. They had me in church. And so I kind of have uh, uh, five mentors. And the first was the pastor Jimmy Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next one. Now he finally gets to the question and the point. <laughs> Karate. <laughs> Three weeks later, this was. This happened on. February 13, 1971, day before Valentine's Day. So three weeks later, as I said earlier, March 5th, Friday, uh, same year. About three, about three weeks later, three or four weeks later, about three weeks later, um, uh, I I go to meet my karate instructor, John Murphy, and uh, you know at this point because of the, all the abuse, I weighed 110 pounds, and I was the same height, I was five nine, full height. But you know, I was just—I at one point I could suck in my gut and touch my hands, just about touch my hands around my waist. Wow! And you could just see nothing but bones. Anyway, so um, I, he had a real mess to try to put back together take that. <laughs> anyway, but he—he—he he, he didn't care if you were blind, deaf, or dumb. His, his philosophy: we beat everyone equally. Beat as in beat up everyone equally. <laughs> <laughs> we don't beat everyone; treat everyone. We beat everyone equally. And at first, uh, uh, you know, he said, don't hurt him. You know, give him a chance to get what he called the Quatli spirit. That was the name of our karate club, Kwatli, uh, uh, after the Aztec warriors. And the Kwatli warrior was the highest uh, form. You know, they had the puma, the lion, you know, and all the way down to the eagle warrior. And the eagle warrior had to actually go and capture a, a leader of another tribe and bring him back and sacrifice them. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, so uh, anyway, so that was where it, that's where the name came from. And, and uh, so I started, and at first, you know, I was just a, I was you know, like 110 pounds. The girls beat me up. My little brother, who's seven years younger than I am, he was nine. And he, we're sitting on the couch, and he takes these boards and whack, just pops them in half. And he had started nine months, of, uh, he had been going for nine months already since mm-hmm. he was eight years old. And I'd take a board, and I'd pound that thing, and I couldn't do anything with it. And I thought, you know, I, and then he'd take it and snap it, and I said, oh, I loosened it up for you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, making excuses. <laughs> and so, but um, Murphy uh, uh, took me, and he for, first he said, okay, you know, he started me, uh, uh, you know, doing the regular exercises and stretching and, and so on in the, in the kicks and punches. And I wasn't putting on any weight. And I was still having the old, old ladies sweep me off my feet and getting <laughs> the best of me. And, uh, and so he said, you need to put some weight on. I want you to start uh, taking vitamins. Okay, so I start taking vitamins every day. And I, that's, now, now, you need to start taking protein shakes, protein shakes. I start protein shakes. He said, you need, to, you need muscle. You need to get some muscle on your body. He said, start working out and uh, uh so I started a guy named gene fisher 's gym he was a he hol- He was a world record holder in the curl he oh cur- wow uh, he could curl two hundred and twenty six pounds that was unrecorded his re- recorded record was two hundred and twenty one pounds unrecorded two hundred and twenty six pounds in his weight division, and he was a classic every man die <laughs> guy I mean he was just built like a Greek god, looked like a greek god and and just a great guy. And at that time, he charged me $9 a month to, tra- for, to work out there. And, uh, so, but he, over the years, pushed me to the point where I could do 500 push-ups in 12 minutes, 9 seconds. I got to the point where I could do 340 on the bench press. That was full, full two times my weight at the time. And uh, I could curl and military more than my own body weight. And there's very few weightlifters. That can curl their own weight. There's people that can press more than their weight, but there's a few that can curl their weight. and uh, and then I could also do the splits across two chairs and touch my head to the floor. <coughs> so anyway, um so I started I started uh, between those two Murphy and uh, and uh, and Fisher, uh, putting my body back together and and because I was obsessive in whatever I happened to, Whatever I happened to uh, uh, step into next, in that case it was you know, what I was just talking about, karate and train, weight training, um, you know, I just went all in. And, uh, and then a few uh, the next year I joined a theater company. Oh, wow. Uh, called The Lambs Players in 1972. And the director was an old TV and movie actor from the 1950s and early 60s. He had his own television shows, um, you know, what, uh, life with fathers and father knows best he died just about every western maid from, <laughs> from Bonanza to, uh, to, uh, uh, to Maverick and you know he'd be the bad guy comes into town and, but he was a classic handsome guy wonderful man still he's 85 years now and lives outside of Las Vegas I just uh, visited him uh, earlier this year um, but dear 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 friend wonderful man but he, uh, I was with that theater company from 72 to 78, and he's the one that really taught me how to play the part of a sighted person. So now, mm. we're evolving here, folks. We're <laughs> going from karate to another thing's going on at the same time, but they interconnect um, because Murphy, he laid the foundation for me to believe that no matter what your situation is, you can bulldoze your way through it. You can fight your way through it. And, uh, and, and Steve Terrell, uh, during rehearsals, he had seen me with the cards just sitting there before, before my scenes, during my scenes, after my scenes, sitting there practicing moves, practicing moves. And I remember watching John Scarny on talk shows back in the 60s and talking about dealing seconds, talking about dealing bottoms. And uh, so I would just, and then of course I had my, the information I had from Erdnase mm-hmm. and just trying to figure out these, uh, these different uh, techniques. And uh, and and then I was still playing cards anywhere and everywhere I could. I was I have to say I was addicted to playing cards, and I you know only because I it's like karate I had to try it out, and so now I'm, I'm jumping back to Steve Terrell. So he would see me practicing with those cards day and night, and he goes, "You know what? You, well, he first of all he taught me how to play the part of a sighted person. I think I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. You know how because uh, at that time." I'm, I'm I'm on stage I'm on stage, and we're rehearsing a scene and the character two characters that i'm I'm uh, interacting with yeah I'm looking at them like this uh, for for those that are listening and you can't see through the radio or through <laughs> whatever um I'm looking at off at an angle at Elliot because at that time I only had peripheral vision, but on stage from the audience point of view, Steve said it doesn't look right, Rick. You know, you're, you've got to look at the character, the actor that you're talking to. So I'm supposed to be talking to you, and I'm looking off like this. That, <laughs> that just doesn't work on stage. He said, a sighted person plays the part of a blind man. You've got to reverse that. You're a blind man. You play the part of a sighted person. So he taught me, you know, look at the voice. And then over the years, I learned how to not just look at the voice, but then there's different types of vision. You know, there's, uh, you know, you have your far vision, you know, when you were looking at something way off in the distance, mm-hmm. that's a difference. Like a lens on a camera, you, you yeah. focus in, you focus out and, uh, and like, you know, you're, you're about 40 inches from me. And so that's a different, uh, that's a different focus with your eyes. Now, if I was looking like this, I'm looking off in the distance, but it looks weird, right? Yeah. You can see the difference. In yeah, yeah. So I've trained myself to look at, uh, like I'm looking at you and, um, and and then he would also like I said watch me just constantly playing with the cards day and night and then doing tricks for him and showing them stuff and he goes you know what if you become the best card man in the world you will earn the respect of others and that'll open doors for you and uh, that always stuck with me he said become the best in the world you owe, people res- will respect respect you and uh, you know I mean, for a number of years before that I wasn't really getting much in the way of respect so. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I would just continue to practice and continue to practice, and then three years later, you, know, I had developed some pretty, pretty good moves. Yeah, I knew all the, you know, Paul Harris. We grew up in the same city, and uh, he was, he, in fact, we're only a month apart in, in age, and he's a amazing genius. I mean, he's, everyone knows Paul Harris. Yeah, and uh, you know, he's just a creative genius, and uh, and, and uh, the John Wagner, J.C. Wagner, he changed his name to eventually. Uh, was in the same city, and Mike Stilwell, and we were all the San Diegan uh, group. Uh, a guy named Joe McGreevy, and uh, but you know, I, would, I would I would go, and I hate to use this term, but I would I called it bleeding them, <laughs> <laughs> bleeding them of their knowledge, whatever they had. I would show enough to try to get their respect, or they get their attention, to have them show me everything that they knew, and then I would just put that in my hopper. And we had a a guy named, uh, a man named Armando Lucero. He was 17 at the time, and I was 19. And uh, he joined the Lambs Players Theater Company, and he's an amazing, talented magician. Have you heard of him, Armando Lucero? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. He's incredible.
2: Oh, yeah, he's so talented. And what I love about Armando is he doesn't use gaff coins and stuff, and he does miracles that you see people do with these gaff things, he does it naturally. And just an incredibly talented young man. Oh, well, Now he's an old man like me. What, Armando, sorry, you're old like me. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, In fact, he has some clips in the Delft film. Um, he's the one that said, talked about how I was just, uh, I'm on the, on the crazy side of obsessive compulsive. He's the one that makes that, says that line in the Delft film. Anyway, so he joined Lamb's Players, and so I, uh, and I, like, oh, good, more gambling stuff, and I watched him do these miracles with, with cards, and I thought, oh, man, this is going to be great at the card table. And then when, I, when he, I talked him into showing me, I thought, well, this isn't going to help at all <laughs> at the card table. A double lift, uh, you know, and put it in the middle. How is that going to glide? You know, well, there's, no, there's a totally no relationship to the, the etiquette uh, uh of the format format uh in a card game mm-hmm. and uh, but still it was fun so i i uh i learned uh things from him and he did give me some uh nice pointers on the three card Monty way back when way back then no. so anyway um uh the, 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 the anyway so then i i'm working with uh bob Yerkes y e r k e s somebody just misquoted me in a magazine, said I was the stunt coordinator for Wonder Woman show. No. Bob Yerkes was the stunt coordinator. I was his gopher. I lived with him. He lived in Northridge, California, uh, off of White Oak and uh, Roscoe Boulevard. Since you live here, you might know what I'm talking about. I do not. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, it's in Northridge. And uh, he has a whole circus in his backyard, trapeze, high wire, uh, Russian swing, uh, just, just every cannon shoot out of everything you need to, to train circus stars oh, Wow! because he had two shows and I lived with him for three years. And, um, he would, uh, we would train the celebrities for, uh, what at that time was called circus of the stars. And then also, uh, he was the stunt coordinator for wonder woman. And I was his right hand man. Um, as far as I was his right hand gopher man <laughs> and, uh, but he's a, he's a dear brother and a great friend, and he comes to see me all the time at the castle. He's now 84, because he and Steve Terrell, they grew up together in Hollywood. And uh, Bob Yerkes has done more stunts than anybody in the history of stunt work, and you name it, he's done it. Anyway, he's a great, great brother. Um, in fact, he comes to the castle every time I'm there, and I might—I uh, well, won't see him tomorrow. Today, well, today is today's the premiere del at the castle. Anyway, I'm getting off off topic again. Hello, <laughs> you got to live with us here. This is exuberaneous. Except- <laughs> Except- <laughs> <laughs> and, and poor Elliot's going, Man, I'm not getting a word in edge, guys. This guy doesn't shut up, does he?
0: Well, this is your time. I don't. They've, look, they've heard my voice for 100 hours now. They don't need me anymore.
2: Okay. And, and like my wife says, he never shuts up. So you're experiencing it for real, folks. Um, who's over there? Oh, someone's still, are those girls still here? They sure are. I thought they got out of here and left us alone. Oh, no. now I have to be self-conscious again. <laughs> I thought I was free to talk. <laughs> you are. Get out, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: just kidding. Just kidding. Um,
2: oh, but uh, what was I got off on a tangent, but they had a real... Uh, uh, we were talking what, what, about martial what, what, arts
0: and then and then uh, uh, circus and stunts and, and all right. that stuff. Yeah,
2: and that's where I learned to swing on the trapeze and take high falls. And and I took some you know, notable celebrities, ones that are household names today who I won't mention. Um for their first swing on the trapeze or their first experience in some form or another. And, um, and, uh, but, but Bobby, Bob Yurkus he was another example of a man that you, know, you can't take down. I mean, he fighting Charles Bronson and break out, breaks his leg for real and keeps on going. Um, he, I, I was with him when he did super stunts where Dar Robinson jumps out of one airplane into another airplane. And and part of that show, you know, Bobby is swinging from the trapeze, the catcher, and he can hardly walk because of the injuries he suffered. And yet he gets out on there, and you cannot tell uh, that he was in total agony. So between he and Murphy and Fisher, you know, they just taught me, hey, suck it up, don't you know? You get hit? Oh, that felt good. I'm going to give you one back. You know, you. You just you, you just don't <laughs> let it you don't let it take you
0: down. Yeah, and, it's and, mind over matter at that point. Yeah,
2: that was what Murphy would say. I don't mind, and you don't matter. Bam, Knock them out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Well, how do you how do you build that discipline? Like, where do you start if if you're not naturally inclined to that sort of thing? What
2: I tell people is mm. one house at a time. Yeah, I've been working out for, I have this down to a, uh, let's see, here. 30, 40, we're in 2017, 11, 46 years, 46 years, uh, eight months, and uh, what's the date today? today? 15. In 10 days. That's how, and, and without, miss, without stopping working out. Um, so, uh, and, and I'm bragging here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I got my first black belt in 84, that took me 13 years of training, so I had to take on 10 fighters in a row, 10 three-minute rounds with a fresh fighter. I weighed in at 168. Uh, last week when I weighed myself, I weighed 168 and two ounces. So there's two <laughs> ounces difference from a... A 33-year period, and uh, but that just comes from discipline. But I, back to what your question is: How do you start? Yeah, I tell people one house at a time. In other words, get out and walk, walk three the length of three houses and come back. The next day, walk the length of four houses and come back. Make it so easy you can't talk yourself out of it. You know, and then and then eventually. Discipline breeds discipline. That's one of so, something I've always said. Discipline breeds discipline. The more you do it, the better you can do it, and the more you can do it. So then, all of a sudden, now you're walk, you're walking around the block. Now jog the length of one house walk. Jog one house walk, and before you know it, those endorphins start kicking in, and you start becoming addicted. And I don't mean that in a negative way. You become your body. And enjoys, mm-hmm. and craves the adrenaline that the, the God put in us, you know, that, that those are the, the things that your brain excretes, and, uh, and it, it causes pleasure, um, and, uh, and then from there, the next thing you know, you're running marathons, so I just say, may take it one step at a time, it so it's so easy, you can't talk yourself out of it. And then, like I said, then that discipline breeds more discipline, more discipline. And then, then it's, you can't, it's not a matter of you can't start. It's a matter of you get to the point where you can't stop. Someone has to stop you. When I'm at a place, they have to, rain, they have to put a noose around me and rein me in. My wife's the same way. She's my, I've had workout partners all over the country. I mean, world champion workout partners in all di- from weights to karate, grandmasters, all, all different areas. But my wife Kim, of all the workout partners, she's the most disciplined uh, and the, and the, and the best student I ever had. She's you know she's also a black belt in three different karate systems. She has a second degree, black belt, second degree black second degree belt under me in Wadokai, second degree black belt in Taekwondo, and a first degree black belt in Jiu Jitsu. And uh, but oh. and we we have a full gym at home, you know everything you'd find in a real nice hotel gym and a pool jacuzzi. And so we have no excuse for not working out. So that's I say. want to make a date upstairs? That means that means we're going upstairs to work out a date downstairs, upstairs, and downstairs. That's really fun date. <laughs> but but a date upstairs that means we're working, working out. She goes, Oh, I was hoping you were going to ask. And we say that every day. <laughs> so we together, we work out five to seven days a week as an average. Wow. Um, and I don't know if that I don't know if that answered any question. Or what we were talking about. Oh, your question was, how do you get started? Yeah. Anyway, that's that's what I tell people when we're talking about the physical things. And physical things will help you help uh, you can apply it to other areas. It uh, it it helps my my discipline with my, my cards. Once you develop that discipline habit, you know, and and I think physical activity is a really good start because you want a good running car an old volkswagen from 1955 where the bumpers are dragging on the floor on the ground and, <laughs> and, the, the, and it's rusted all the way through that thing's not going to put uh, hang in there if you you have a, 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 a 2017 ferrari you know you want a ferrari and uh, so you want to build up your, your, your you you'll know, have a strong, healthy body. Because that then, like I said, then you can adapt it to in the other areas. And for my other area was, of course, you know, the, the cards and the, the two other, there's martial arts. Um, and, but, uh, but that dis- one discipline, if you can be disciplined in this area, it's not so far fetched to be disciplined in other areas. And I do, I, I do the same thing with cards, except for with cards. I took it, I took it, I, I approached it from a different point of view. Instead of starting at the easiest thing, I started with the hardest thing. Because there were magicians back then that, I, I call them a th- thieves. You know, they would see somebody's trick, they would steal it, and the next day they're, try- they're putting it in their show. Mm-hmm. I, didn't want, I didn't want that. And so I started, uh, uh, I started working out with the middle deal. You know, I was already doing seconds and bottoms, and then in my probably early 20s, late teens, early 20s, uh, you know, I started with uh, trying to figure out ways of doing the middle. And mind you, mind you they were horrible back then. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend uh, they were. Larry Jennings, just he—he he was one of my peers at the time. <laughs> that's that's—he he had no—he had no appreciation for what I did then. Anyway. Why not? Because it was bad, oh. <laughs> but it was a start. It was I, I have no appreciation for it, but it was a start. I was, I wanted to be able to do those those moves, so you um, start working. And of course, really, my uh, my last mentor, of course, was Dave Vernon, mm-hmm. and that was you know three years after I uh, you know I started karate. Uh, I uh, was oh I was working with I was living with Bob Yurkis. And on the, you know, doing the Circus of Stars, Wonder Woman, well, that was that time, Circus of Stars and other stunt, uh, other shows for others, Mm -hmm. other uh, TV shows that he would do. And we'd have the actors and uh, the stunt doubles come in and we'd train them for whatever it was that they were getting ready to do. Like Wonder Woman's getting ready to, uh, she's up in a tree and then she jumps down to the ground and it looks like she's, you know, 15 feet up jumping down to the ground. But actually they do it the other way around. You're on the ground it looks like she's on the ground. She jumps up into a tree to hide. But actually what they do is they start in the tree and they jump down. And when they do it, then they just run that footage backwards. So it looks like she went, zoop, just hopped herself up, up 10 feet up on a, on a tree limb or whatever. Anyway, tangents, tangents. I'm full of tangents. Enjoy. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, oh, uh, uh, Vernon. Vernon died, uh, Bob uh, uh, J.C. Wagner. Uh, sadly, he died about four years ago of... Kidney failure, too much drinking, unfortunately, and um, he's only sixty. But um, he was my one of my San Diego buds, and uh, he told Vernon about you know that this kid can do seconds and bottoms, and I just turned twenty one, and like I said, I was working with Bob Yerkes, uh, uh and living with him, and so uh, I, he, I, he's going to meet with me to meet and take me meet me at the meet me at the Magic Castle to meet Vernon. And of course, I, I, I just, I've i never been to the castle yet either. And for those that don't know what the Magic Castle is, it's what the Grand Opry is to country music, the Magic Castle is to magic. It's like the Mecca uh, where the, they have the AMA Awards, Academy of Magical Arts Awards, like the Country Music Awards. Um, it's where magicians all around the world come and, and like to perform very upscale. It's a beautiful 27,000-square-foot Victorian mansion that has all different showrooms, throughout, and it's only by invitation to get in. Very, very fun place. One of the most fun venues to perform in. Anyway, so I hear. I knew all about the castle, and of course I wasn't old enough to get in now until, uh, until uh, 75. And, uh, and John Widener calls me up the night before and says, oh, by the way, you have to have a suit to get in the Magic Castle. <laughs> a, suit? a suit? You mean, you're talking like a tie? A coat? At that time, I couldn't afford a suit. I was getting paid four dollars an hour from Bob Yerkes, and uh, and that was when when I, on a good day, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I and then of course I had my gambling stash because I was always playing cards with people, so I always had a, 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 I always had my gambling stash totally separate from any living expenses. I always had a from one points of just stacks of ones, fives, quarters, uh, twenty dollar bills to uh, to years down the line, uh, cigar boxes crammed with one hundred dollar bills, um, but uh, so anyway, I had I I had about seventy or eighty dollars on me, and uh, and my gambling sash. So I okay, so I get a ride down to the Northridge shopping center, and I went into this men's clothing store, and I put my cards on the rack, one of those circular racks with a little glass top table, and then the Coat circle the rack and I start going through the coats just thumbing through it and I pull out this tan corduroy piece of crap <laughs> which I still have today <laughs> size 38 regular at that time and I pull it out and the sales guy come up, comes up to me and says I'll uh get your high card for that coat and I my eyes lit up and I thought this is my lucky day. I said, okay. And he backs off. He goes, no, no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. I said, tell you what. I said, let's go. Come over to your checkout counter. I'm going to give you a chance to, to earn, uh, uh, earn some money. And I took out two jokers and a queen. And I said, if you follow that queen, I'll just move these three cards around. If you follow it, I'll pay double for the coat. You keep the difference. And he goes, really? I said, really? I said, but if you lose, you give me the coat for free. He says, oh, okay. So I throw the cards, and darn, he missed. Must have done something sneaky when I threw those cards. I said, tell you what, I'll bet you the coat against a pair of pants, cheap old corduroy pair of pants. And he goes, okay. And, and he loses again. I said, all right. I, I suspect that this is probably going to come out of your pocket, and uh, I'll give you one more chance to get your coat in pants back. I bet the coat and pants he gets a shirt and a tie. And uh, he said, okay, but well, this is the last one. And uh, so anyway, he lost again. I don't know how that happened. Uh, maybe it's because I threw the top card instead of the bottom card. I don't know. And <laughs> all those magicians, you know what I just said. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, uh, I walked out of there with a brand new suit, didn't pay a dime, uh, and of course I did have the shoes I had. Oh God, they were, they were, I don't even know how to describe them. <laughs> they weren't tennis shoes. They were something, but they were raggedy. And, uh, but they got me, they, they didn't notice my shoes when I went in. So I got through the door, went up to the, uh, at that time, the Magic Castle library was on the upper, on the fourth floor of the castle where the offices are now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I go in there and it was uh, John Wagner, uh, he met me and he, we walked in there and Vernon was sitting at one table with a deck of cards in his hand and another circular table off to the right in the back was a guy named Tony Giorgio who was an actor and, a, and in the 40s and 50s. He was a bust-out man. You know, he was one of the top card handlers in the world, card mechanics in the world. And he's best known uh, for his appearance in the movie Godfather. He played Br- Bruno, he was Bruno Tataglia's Toughest henchman, uh, uh, Vito video Toughest henchman named Bruno Pataglia in the film Bruno Pataglia, but his name was Tony Giorgio. Anyway, uh, so I start uh, showing. Uh, first, I tried showing a few of my tricks that I came up with, and uh, uh, John Wagner said, "Don't show him some of your deals." So I, <laughs> I show him some of my deals, and you know, and I'm dealing seconds and. I my left hand's just swinging all over the place, and <laughs> and, and Georgio's yelling, "Won't we'll get the money! Won't we'll get the money!" And then Vernon goes, "I don't care how fine the brief is. When you move your hand like that, it's not natural. It's not natural. It's not. It's, it's no good." And so I was getting negative feedback from both of them, and and then uh, and then Vernon literally grabbed my left hand and said, "I'll start dealing." And then I showed him one of my stud uh, seconds, mm-hmm. you know. Um, which is w- one that uh, I, I started back then. And it's one of the first ones I came up with, and I, and I still do it today. And uh, and I and that one I deal slower, and it's the deck is held in a more natural grip. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, 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 that one I like, you know. And anyway, to make a, a long story short, um, Giorgio kept yelling, won't get the money, won't get the money, and and Le, J- Vernon kind of took a liking to me, and I don't, I can't tell you why, but he took a liking to me, and. And I became his protege, and so over the next 17 years, I became the recipient of a century worth of his most guarded card table artifice, stuff that he traveled around the world hunting down hustlers to try to get their their knowledge, like Alan Kennedy back in the early 30s, the guy, the first person known to deal from the middle, and and then uh, Dad Stevens from 1919, he showed me his method for dealing uh, side second, and then I would he would... Sh- describe it to me, and then I would take that information and then I would put it together. But what is interesting about Vernon is he didn't describe the moves to me in the way that he could do it or the way that anyone else could do it because I wasn't able to see clearly what he was doing. It was just kind of a blur, and he would let me get close to his hands. But even then, when he would tell me what I should be doing, he said, Now, Richard, you need to have all your four fingers on the side of the deck where back then, everybody dealt like this, you know, mechanics mm-hmm. grip with the index finger scrolled across the front of the deck. Mm-hmm. And he said, you want it, you don't want them to think you're doing anything dirty, so you need to be natural, naturalness. Don't put any tension, relax, just hold the cards like this. And so I assumed that's the way it was able to be done. I assumed that's what he was doing. And then I would spend thousands of hours figuring out how to, to deal like, you know, the, like the second here yeah. you know, with, with, the, with, the, with the fingers on the side and not going, you know, all these different points. Exactly. And then um, and he would go, and I'd show it to him, and he goes, that's it. And he, would just, and he would saw me just obsessed with whatever he would give me as a challenge. Then the next time he saw me, I was able to do it and do it in a way that he was not able to do it, nor did he know others that could do it that way, and that's one of the reasons why all my work is di- looks different than just about every other card handler you'll see, because they grew up with a certain blueprint that they work from. Mm-hmm. I work from Vernon's imagination, and because it was his imagination, and I took it, and I, my own imagination, based on what I thought he was telling me, that's how I created uh, so much of my work. And then I just kept pushing the envelope. And, but he was just an absolute amazing man. I mean, talent, 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 talent. And, if, uh, and the funny thing about Vernon is he never showed you anything above your pay grade. I'll just put it like that. In other words, if you're showing him a, sec, uh, a double lift that you do, he'll show you two dozen ways of doing it better. <laughs> and then you say, "Well, Vernon, we show me your second deal." And if you couldn't deal second, he he would just set the deck down and wouldn't show you anything further. He would, he would never tip or show you something above your your skill set at that time. So he brought your skill set up, but he would not, especially when it came to the gambling, where he would never uh, he would very very rarely uh, tip it. There was a very small circle of people that uh, that we all got together and, and went over those moves. And at the same time that I mentioned Tony Giorgio, he was my nemesis for like 35 <laughs> years. Uh, he, you know, because from 75 to 80, you know, I was no threat to him. A punk kid, you know. He's twice my age. Same with Larry Jennings. He's twice my age. And I you know, and Jennings thought he was going to be the new professor when Professor passed away. He's going to take that seat. And and, uh, and and. But then because I literally practiced. Ten, ten, my average practice day was 14 hours. Mm-hmm. A low day was 10 hours. That's when I had extra training that I was doing because of preparing for a fight or something. And, my, and there were days that I'd get up at six in the morning and I wouldn't go to bed till till three at night. And that would be a, a you know, 20 hour practice day because I'd get up and I'd start practicing with the cards. And the only time I would put them down was if I showered, which I had waterproof cards too. There. <laughs> uh, or I, in the ocean, I had waterproof cards there too. Or but I just had the cards working constantly in my hands and not just, I'm not fooling with them. I'm never fooling with them, I'm always practicing moves. As we're sitting here, I'm doing strip outs. Um, you know, I'm never just fiddling with them. People will hear, he said, Oh, they always hear this <laughs> sound. That's only because that's the one thing that I'm doing where it's noisy. You know, I'm doing a one hand strip out, mm-hmm. you know, and because it's, it makes noise. People think that i'm it's, it's, it, that's what I'm practicing, but they never hear when I'm practicing the deals and stuff because that's very quiet
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, uh, um, but anyway, uh, Jennings uh,
0: yeah. thought he was going to be Vernon yeah, he,
2: exactly and so and then, and Giorgio, so like I said, for the first five years, I was no threat, and then all of a sudden my skills, as Vernon put it, expo- were exponentially mul- multiplying in their in my in my in my abilities, I guess you would say, and now all of a sudden they're not able to do the things in the ways that I was doing them, and now all of a sudden there was this controversy. or Controversy is not the right word. Jealousy, uh, aggravation. They, George, Larry would always say, "Yeah, it's all right, but but Miller, Charlie Miller can do that. Charlie Miller can do that. He was always, always Charlie. Who's this Charlie Miller? That's yeah, all. That's a good deal. But Charlie Miller can do better, and." Uh, so that was Jennings, uh, to uh, his default line that he had always used whenever I'd do something, and Vernon would say that you can't do that, Larry. And one time, I hate to put, I hate to say this, but I I'm performing in the, in the, parlor. You, even though I'm doing a close-up show in the parlor back then. They let me do a close-up show in the parlor because it seated more people. Mm-hmm. And I had all my friends in from Lamb's Players in San Diego, a whole bunch of them. They all came up, and Vernon was sitting there with Larry and a, a number of other top card guys. And Larry Vernon would, I would, I would ask a number for like demonstrating a middle deal, or. Or a stack, whatever it happened to be, and Vernon would answer every question. He didn't let the audience answer one single question. He go, <laughs> I say, How is someone's picking number six, six. Watch us, Larry. Watch us, Larry. Six, six. Watch six. And then I deal, deal him out a six. I uh, another number, five, five. Watch us, Larry. Watch us, Larry. And, uh, and then you know, he'd go, Larry, well, you can't even tie his shoes. And, go, <laughs> and I'm in the back, going, Oh God, Professor. And this was this was after I was done. When I heard him say that, because you could hear it from behind the curtain, I'd go. Professor, he's going to hate me even worse. Don't say things like that. <laughs> and of course, Professor was known for purposely uh, pitting people against each other. You know, to, and he did that for the purposes of making them better. You know, but uh, at that time, I didn't know that. And uh, anyway, so eventually, Larry became a, a good friend, and he said some very nice things. And but, uh, Giorgio, we battled for thirty years, and and uh, he would uh, finally. And, uh, everybody, here comes my phone. That that gambler song. That's my phone ringing. I'm, oh, I just hit a button and made it stop, and I don't even know how I did it. Talent on loan from God. Didn't even know I had it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, maybe I just answered it. Now they're going to hear me talking. Oh, whoever's on the phone, I'm uh, live on some. We're live on the air. We're live on the air. So enjoy the show. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, <clears throat>
2: um, but anyway, Giorgio. Yeah, we we battled, and uh, and there were times he was carried out of the castle in handcuffs because of uh, because of his how uh, bl- blur uh, blurted blur, I say the word for me uh, uh, he could be in the, and the the bartenders would tell me Richard, don't worry about it. he's just jealous of you. Don't let it get you down, and you know they would all be you know supportive because he was very very obnoxious and he was a big man. He was like six foot two. And he, I always say, he didn't have to act. He just played himself in the movies. A bean, nasty, mafia hitman. <laughs> and, uh, um, but anyway, in 2001, um, you know, I, I, uh, they brought Giorgio and Giorgio wanted to sit down with me and I knew what they wanted. They wanted another battle between Turner and Giorgio and I didn't want to do that. And I had just finished my show and he said, Vernon, Vernon had been dead, died like t- nine years before. And, uh. And uh, Giorgio, uh, sitting in Vernon's seat and they had the seat across open mm-hmm. for me. And there's about a dozen top card guys just standing around. Richard, please have a seat. Please have a seat. Tony came in just to see you. And I, didn't uh, knew it was up but I didn't want to do it. I said, that's okay. And then I finally realized, you know what? Tony did me a big f- favor. He, because he, because his criticism pushed me harder. Mm-hmm. He would say something derisive and, uh, it would, uh, and I would think about it okay he says no, don't do it this way do it this way and, and so it, may, it pushed me hard and I realized uh, Vernon approached it from a positive, Giorgio from a negative but both of them had the same effect, it was positive for me and it was a benefit to me and so I realized, I said Tony, I said I just wanted to thank you for all your years of encouragement, I said sometimes you were really hard on me but I knew that Others respected you because you really knew the real work. And I just want to thank you for all your years of, of encouragement, even when, they were, even when it was tough love, if you would. And he goes, well, Richard, thank you. And he asked, oh, did you ever get that particular middle deal down? And I said, oh, of course, for years ago. And then he said, would you please sit down and show us? And then for the next two and a half hours, we're going back and forth, move for move, and the uh, highlight of my life, and it kind of reflects back to what... Uh, Steve Terrell said you earn their respect you know and, and he after almost everything I did he'd look up from the ground and go that'll get the money that'll get the money <laughs> which was the best compliment you could receive before the worst, the worst thing you could hear is we'll get the money, Won't we'll get the money you know and so anyway and then we became very good friends after that and I actually uh, was asked to write a, a story after he had passed away um, uh, because of uh, you know, our 40 year Almost 40-year relationship, but he was a he was a, an amazing man, and I, I have all all kinds of respect for him. And uh, you know, and all that I have, you know, yes, I I am disciplined, and it's up to you to. It's really going to be you that makes it happen, whatever you want to do. But I was very blessed that I had these people in my life that pushed me, and so I have to credit them. Marlowe, Vernon, Charlie Miller, Larry Jennings, Giorgio, all of them were my, were my I would, I'll just say, heroes, even though at the, some of the times they were my adversaries, but they really, they really uh, deserve a lot of credit for what, what I have accomplished and what I can do, put it in whatever category you want. They were really, really
0: uh, behind a lot of it. Next question. <laughs> I think that's beautiful, and I think it's amazing that Vernon, you know, looked at, he kind of created the perfect moves, right? Like, as far as I understand it, he wanted to be able to do something, and so he told you how he wanted to do it, and then you were able to accomplish it and f- fulfill it. Exactly.
2: And I didn't know, and he eventually told me, he said, I just made that up. I just wanted to see what you'd come up with. He said, I didn't think it was possible to do that. And so one of the things I like to say is take possible out of impossible. Take possible out of impossible. And like I mentioned earlier, discipline breeds discipline. And then there's another expression that I don't agree with, and that is practice makes perfect. No way, Jose. Perfect practice makes perfect. You can practice something wrong, and when you're done, it's perfectly wrong. And in my business, you know, with the cards, I see it all the time. I'll see people do the most horrendous method of dealing the second card, as a for instance, or a bottom card, and uh, and it's because they practice it wrong and they spent whatever years they did, and it's perfectly wrong. So <laughs> you better know what you're doing, and you practice it perfect. You figure out what it what should it look like, from a, the standpoint of a of a layman. Not a professional gambler, but a layman. How are they going to do? How are they going to deal those cards in a way that there's no heat brought on you? So you need to be able to imitate those actions. And, uh, and yeah. anyway, so as like I said, perfect practice makes perfect.
0: Yeah, I I I love the uh, for for Paul Wilson shot that documentary Our Magic and there's a little excerpt of you in the library at the Magic Castle talking about how to practice, and I love that little video. Do you remember doing that? Oh, oh Paul, Paul Wilson? Yeah. Oh, is that in the video, his video? It's not in the documentary, oh, but it, it was shot for that, yeah. Yes, yes, I remember, yeah.
2: Uh, you see, I break things down into pieces, and, and what I do is I'll take a move and turn it into a subconscious habit. People say, how can you practice 10 hours a day, 12, 14, 18 hours a day without going nuts? You know, we all have what I call idle energy. You see people, they just, if they're sitting, they're tapping their finger, or they're tapping their toe, or they have a pen, they're tapping their pen. They're biting their fingernails. They're biting their fingernails, exactly. All that's idle energy that's being wasted. It's like a car idling. The engine's moving, but nothing's going on. Nothing's happening. You're wasting that energy. And that's a minute piece of energy. It's not like running a marathon where it's going to wear you out. So you take that idle energy and you direct it into something positive. So I would take a move. Um, I'll just it was a second deal. I would analyze how do I want that card to come out. And what did Vernon say? Well, fingers on the side. Uh, don't, don't be rocking that left hand. So I'd have the hand, lay it on the counter so it doesn't move at all. And then you don't want to go up here and cross thumbs because that's not natural. And I'd break it down piece by piece and analyze exactly what my end result should be. And I would, I would analyze it. And then I would start doing it super slow motion, as slow as I could. Uh, so I knew I was doing it right. Even if I wasn't getting it, I'm practicing as I want it to come out, as I want it to end up. And then I turn it into a subconscious habit. And so then when I'm just talking to you, the whole time we've been sitting here, I've been practicing moves. And I, I could probably go back and tell you which moves I practice, but I was not consciously aware of the fact that I was practicing them. So I turn things into a subconscious habit. And so instead of just tapping my toe, I'm dealing seconds. And I'll deal I'll sit there, and, like I'm standing at a grocery store, I'm st- standing in line, I'm uh, pushing it, c- whatever. I'll deal a cart out, put it in the middle, deal a second, put it in the middle. You know, And I do that, like, one every second, ten hour, uh, one hour, two hours, three hours, four, five hours, 16,000 times in that day, just doing that one move. And then, after a period of time, I'd look down, metaphorically speaking, I'd look down and uh, realize... I got it. That's it. That's what I want to do. That shift, oh, it's starting to come around. I I came up with the idea, and it was two and a half years later before I realized, ah, that's it. And, And it was only because I was sitting there, just my hands were doing that move over and over and over and over and over and over again, thousands upon thousands of times, and without conscious effort. But then the thing is, sometimes you get to a plateau where you don't seem to be making progress. And at that point, you do have to go back and re-engage your brain. And what I would do is I would handicap myself. Like say, uh, I'm going, okay, this bottom, I'm having trouble getting that, that bottom card off the bottom. It's, and so I would make it harder on myself. I would add like three or four or five, six cards to the deck. So now I have a 56 or 58 card deck, which means that bottom card is way down there. And a whole lot harder to uh, to get a hold of. And then I would practice it that way, and I would just, and and once again do it sort of like a baseball player. You warm it up with three bats, and, say, and then when they get up with one bat, man, piece of cake. <laughs> so then once I got it, and I was getting it, I was getting those moves moving again in a forward way, in a forward direction. I would pass that plateau, and I'm starting to make upward progress again. Then I would go back to the subconscious practicing. And sometimes it would be a year, five years, 10 years before you actually accomplish what you set out to, to achieve. So it was an a, a ongoing progress. And you can't expect results the next day. People, when I, they will say, well, I've been working on it for a month now. I'm going, a month? Di Vernon says it takes seven years just to learn how to pick up a deck properly and put it in your hands. And people hear that and they go, he was just a crazy old man. But he took <laughs> seven years to pick up a deck and put it in your hands. I know what he means now. I didn't know what he meant then, but I know what he means now. <clears throat> so you can't expect results after a month or two months. To, and again, you have to realize, what's your objective? Do you want to really develop these moves? Because it's not. It's like playing in the pro, uh, pro basketball, pro football uh, you know, there's a handful of people that play, a play on that level, you know, and they didn't get there after a month of practice. You know, they spent many, many years developing their body techniques, uh, 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 routine forms, uh, plays to, to, to be able to develop that swing or that, those, uh, the, the ability to catch that ball. So, you know, you make sure you know what you're getting into and realize it's not going to come overnight, And don't get frustrated. I don't, I never, I can't, I I never get frustrated. I virtually never get frustrated. I'm working on something, I just keep working. I I don't have it yet, I just still keep working. But don't let it frustrate you. Just keep your eye on the goal, on the end result. And realize what I want to be able to do is get that card out in this way. And uh, I have two friends, and they're good examples uh, uh, Jason England
1: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, Paul Gertner, and another guy, uh, uh, David Elliot. Uh, 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 he wasn't named after you because <laughs> yours is in the front, his is in the back. And um, but they have been working on my second deal for years. Jason England started working on it 27 years ago, almost 27 years ago. And uh, and they have that mentality. You know, they they they're they're not frustrated. And with Paul Gertner. Golly, he would spend, we'd be together for 10, 12 hours at a time. And every moment he's sitting there, breaking it down to the micro, microsecond, micro move, the micro, you know, down to the macro level, a micro level, you know, and they're getting it. But you have to have that mentality where this is my goal and what it, what it takes from, from A to Z. All the letters in between are not going to get in my way. You know, the B, C, D, E, F, forget that. A to Z, my goal is this. I'm not letting any of these things. I'm just going there and, and all these other letters, I'm just running over the top of them on my way.
0: And every little, every little moment, and this, this could blow out, you know, in, to the life scale as well, but every moment is in pursuit of that goal. Every, it, it, and you check in constantly.
2: Yes, you, you check yourself back to make sure that you're not... Uh, doing uh, you uh, you got off track in your move and there's I I have habits that I'll do and I go where did I ever develop that habit and uh, and someone one time someone brought what are you doing there and then I, I don't know that I realized <laughs> I thought, what the heck did I develop that for what a wasted habit and what a wasted move has no purpose and is stupid <laughs> and uh, and and many of the things I mean half the stuff that I've created I've never shown anybody. I, uh, I, I create it for my own enjoyment, my own amusement, and uh, I've I just haven't shown anybody. I I I've come up with a way of doing this or that, and and uh, maybe I show somebody. Maybe usually I don't. Um, but anyway, back to what you said. You do gotta. You have to get back to um, uh, checking yourself to make sure as you're going from A to Z, you're you're at K, and all of a sudden at K. You've kind of made a little bit of a left turn there, and all of a sudden that card, that, that your grip has slightly changed, and now you're out of out of whack, and it and it's not looking natural. So then you got to get yourself back, like I said, back on track, and then uh, then not worry about uh, LMNOP, just then worry about Z getting to the end result.
0: How much how much new how many new techniques are you actively practicing, if any?
2: Oh, yeah, uh, there are certain things that I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm practicing. What a, one thing that I'll never perform is being able to just riffle the cards off, you know, one for one as a as a table riffle, as I'm sitting here doing right now, you know, um, and that's just for my own amusement. <laughs> uh, and uh, the fastest I've been able to do is like six point something seconds. Average is like eight seconds, but it's just um, it's just for my own my own amusement. I'll I'll do that. And I've been—I first started trying to do that when I was back in 1974 or so, and of course, you know, and this was half a century ago almost. (laughs) Anyway, so there are certain things that I do for my for my own amusement, and there's other ways I'll do my a a, a second stud, a a stud deal with a slightly different take, and I, I, you know, I, I develop, make sure I can do it. And I know I can do it, but I never show it. <laughs>
0: uh, how how do you check to make sure that your techniques are still invisible to the level that you want them to be? Because you can, it, you know, magicians use the term "it flies by audiences." Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how you know how much is like Kim a part of your practice, or you know, do you have other collaborators? That well,
2: my my son probably is my my best collaborator he grew up watching me since he was born and if uh, he would probably be one of the best spotters of somebody doing stuff he's three years old at a birthday having a magician perform at his birthday party you got those balls palmed in your left hand over there you know he's calling out what the magician (laughs) is doing at three and four years old and um and i I had to we had to tell him okay he's a We understand that you can, you know, some of this stuff, and you can see it and catch it. Don't, don't embarrass them. (laughs) And uh, and if I could get it by him, he's probably the hardest person to get it by uh, that I have. So if I can get it by him and Kim, because sometimes we we do play poker together as a family, but except because obviously I I have no side anymore. So I I I. I, uh, cannot play hold'em or stud or some of the other games that I just enjoyed so much growing up. Mm-hmm. The only game that left is what's called no peak. You get seven card no peak, everyone gets seven cards, and and since nobody knows what their hand is, you just turn one, one, one person turns over a card, the next, person say it's an ace, the next person has to beat it so they get an ace two and that beats it and then I have to beat an ace two and I have two sixes and you go around the table and you bet as you go. So. Um, when we're playing in a restaurants or whatever, you know, sometimes I will, I will deal half the cards from the bottom or whatever, just knowing that they always catch me. <laughs> yeah, you know, are you know, and uh, you know, and, and half the time they're just letting it ride. Other times they they'll make a comment. So, you know, because you know they have trained, you know, very very well trained eyes and ears, mm-hmm. and uh, and. And they will, and so uh, they're really good people to practice on. But then I will also uh, uh, work and show. You know, my friends Jason England, Steve Forty. Now there's an amazing man, Steve Forty. I call him a genius genius. The general public, the general magician public, they don't know how brilliant that guy is. That guy is on a level that's just amazing. That guy can do things. With his mind and tracking and steering, and uh, they, they called him Captain Crunch because the way he's able to follow cards. I mean, he's the uh, and his card handling skills. There, he's just, he's just uh, absolutely amazing. I just got god uh, god respect for that guy. <laughs> but he's a you know who I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. Oh, he's so fantastic. He's in the Delft film. Yeah, yeah, he has a but, but. Um, we've been referred to. We should tell some people about the we should, we film. We
0: probably should plug the film. <laughs> we don't even have to plug. We
2: tell them about it. that. Was uh, uh, you saw it? Yes. Yes, What I was did. your impression?
0: I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. The story is uh, very compelling, and I, I have a couple questions about it. Um, what was? What's your opinion of the film?
2: Well, you know, it, you, I have to separate myself. From myself, mm-hmm. you can't talk. It's hard to talk about yourself and uh, be a, objective. So I have to look at it from a from the standpoint of a uh, a piece of art that somebody has done. Yeah, I just happen to be the the subject the, the subject of the art. Uh, but from a cinematic storytelling aspect, they did an amazing job. They put these guys: Luke Corum, Russell Groves, Bradley Jackson. Jake Hamilton, uh, the chief photographer, uh, all these people that worked on uh, it—they—they pulled no expense and uh, no—they cut no corners. And there's been—I don't think there's a documentary out there that that has that they have put this much effort into it. Just to give you, for instance, all my card work—they filmed in Red Camera 5K and we were in studio, and they did this for a number of days, and uh, they have many, many hours of all my work, and they built this giant glass table, three-quarter-inch 3, three inch glass, and, and with uh, red cameras under the table. They use red cameras on top of the table, and if you know what red camera 5K is, that's five times higher than HD, high def, and then they use... Like 100 millimeter macro lenses, that's like the lens that they'll use to look at the eye of an ant. So when you're watching me deal a second, you all, on the big screen, all you actually see are the tips of my thumbs, and you watch that second card melt out of the deck. And then they, they wanted it to be uh, pleasant uh, 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 to, the, to the viewing audience, in that they shoot, I'm dealing seconds and they're shooting, and I am have my hand, the deck up in front of my face, in front of my right eye, and I'm dealing the second, and they're shooting into my eye and catching the reflection inside the eye of the cards of me dealing seconds, or fanning the cards. Uh, just some really amazing stuff And the, the slow motion, you know, the uh, 240 frames per second, and, and other, th- uh, other things, they just, and, and when they were all done, they said, who would have ever spent that much money to film <laughs> cards? And all of that for what maybe in the film would be a, a number of minutes when, it, when it's all woven within the, 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 the film. Um, but, and then they got Duncan Thume, who's twice nominated for Emmy for Best Composer of a Dramatic Series, to uh, you know, the, our editors, award-winning editors, uh, the sound mixing they go on the top sound mixers in the country um, anyway they they fortunately, fortunately we had some very very uh good executive producers that uh were able were you know trusted them to put the funds up you know to needed to to make the film what it is and um and as you know it 's won all kinds of awards already and uh but uh the story arc, I, when it was all said and done, I had no idea where they were going to take the story yeah. and how it was going to end. And it was, uh, uh, they managed to make a, a strong story arc. And uh, just five words I kind of used to describe the film you know, it'll make you cry. Half the women cry during that film, 20 like 20% of the men cry, tear up. I teared up. And then the next thing, the laughing. One second, they're crying like Steve Forty when he saw it because he was, he was my eye in the sky. He, he proofed all my card work to make sure it was uh, to, perfect.
0: <laughs> That's kind of him. <laughs> yeah,
2: and you can't ask for a better person. Exactly. Steve Forty and, a, and another friend named Bruce Samboy who's a friend of Steve Forty. He's a gaming regulator on the East Coast in charge of catching cheaters. And Steve Forty, there's no one better... Maybe he and uh, George Joseph are the two top probably in the world, and um, but anyway, uh, so they uh, uh, proofed it, and that. Now what was my point? I had a point that I got off on a tangent. Go ahead, see. Uh,
0: they were proofing your card work, and yeah, before that, before uh, that, we were talking about crying. Steve. Oh, no, that's it. Yeah.
2: Man, is this guy good, everybody? Man, <laughs> Elliot, how does he remember? I can't even remember. And I was, I'm here.
1: Um,
2: so. Uh, uh, it, it, they they they'll cry. The next thing, you, like Steve said, the next thing you, the next day I'm tearing up. Then you, all of a sudden you come out and I'm laughing my head off. And Then there's a scene in there that will make your toes curl, right? Eat an eyeball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot
0: about that. <laughs>
2: and uh, and then uh, then it, then it encourages and inspires. So it will make you laugh, cry, toes curl. Uh, uh, uh inspire motivate and inspire and, and any one of those elements in a film is the goal of a filmmaker and it's hard to hit those marks and with based on the reaction of just about everybody that's seen it and all the reviews and we're talking about variety magazine and you know, those major magazines and and reviewers that uh you know it it is it's it's touching people in a way that you, you filmmakers just dream that they're going to be able to do and and somehow these guys did it and you i, I can't take credit for that 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 is that is all there that they deserve all the accolades for that particularly luke corum luke he's his father is danny corum who's a famous magician so he grew up as uh, a magician, his dad, at six years old, wanted Luke to be the best six year old magician in the world. <laughs> so that's, the, that's, the, that's how he, he started off, and then, uh, then he got into films, and, uh, and he's a detailed person like I am, as I was describing to you, how you take things, break it down, minute, teeny piece by piece, he's the same way with his film. If, it's, if one particular cut or scene or word is not exactly perfect. He will make it perfect, and uh, you know. So, and he will stay up. You know, in post production, he was up twelve to fourteen hours, six days a week, working with our primary editor. They would go back and forth from from Los Angeles to Austin. You know, cutting and clipping and and trimming, and and they actually had a full film cut, and they totally scrapped it. They had a, a whole uh, full, full full hour completed part of the film, and they decided to go a different direction based on uh, uh, more things as they continued to shoot, because um, uh, they followed my family around, and my family and I around the world for over three over three years, about three and a half years, and. Luke would actually, we call it the Luke Room at our home. <laughs> and the thing is, sneaky old man, sneaky young, I won't use a bad word here, but stinky young guy, I'm, I won't know when that camera's going. I'm in my office and he caught me, I, I, he said, oh yeah, I got you, I said, you didn't get that. I said, yeah, I sure did. Oh, you sneaky guy. <laughs> you know, so I never knew when that camera was going. Yeah. And so, but anyway, that's an aside. Um, but the bottom line is, they they put so much effort into this film, and they got they would screen it with you know, prominent filmmakers in here in the Hollywood area, mm-hmm. and they screened it quite a number of times, get all their feedback, and then they go back and then continue to work, edit, trim, uh, alter, and then pick up any pickups that they needed, um, and uh, and the fact that they filmed so long. That's why they turned it into what would have been a bio- more of a biopic, you know, yeah. into more of a current day storyline. You know, it's really present day, yeah, uh, f- for the most part. and That's only because, you know, they kept following us around, uh, around the world, and certain things happened. I got the the Academy Awards with the AMA Awards and one, mm-hmm. then a year later, back to the AMA Awards, and and I don't want to give any give things away, but
0: no spoilers, uh, no spoilers, <laughs> yeah,
2: and. Uh, and then we got some, you know, Max Maven is, you know, he, he's got such a rich voice. And, oh, he's got a great voice. Oh man, doesn't he have a great voice? And, you know, and just some of the things that he says and, and of course, Steve Forty, uh, my, uh, and Jason England, um, you know, we, uh, Armando Lucero, i trying to think of some of the people that were in the cut and, and the thing is they interviewed, they had over like 60 interviews, full setup, lighting, cameras, and, uh. Uh, You know, they didn't just take a camera and say, "Okay, tell us something. You know, they had everything professionally lit in the whole whole nine yards when they did each thing they did. And uh, some of the stuff which sometimes we had, you know, like at the Magic Castle when they filmed my show there, they had four cameras in the close-up room. Then Magic Castle was never allowed
0: four cameras in the close-up room. Yeah, the footage in there is really beautiful.
2: Yeah, and that, that's because they had four cameras in the close up room. And, uh, and they filmed 35 of my shows in the close up room with four camera shoot. And uh, so, um, and the, and we have to really thank the Magic Castle because you know, they gave us and gave them access that uh, I don't think they've ever given anybody else. And they've had many, many shows filmed at the castle over the decades. You know from you know I've been in some of them from Japan all the way around the world everybody wants to do a story on the castle but the, they gave us and gave uh, Luke and the boys you know access in a way that they they haven't given others and it's and it paid it paid off and and uh, and a uh, big thanks to the castle for you know for what they did and what they allowed and I think part of it is because you know
0: they like me <laughs> <laughs> they must like me
2: <laughs> because they were so nice to us
0: well yeah i I believe it. I have a question, and you hinted at it a little bit, but I'm curious about how uh is is the is the vulnerability of having a documentary made about yourself, and also in the film you talk about doing a one man show that's a little more. Uh, personal and and authentic in that way. How has that changed your life and your experience of the world and of performing and connecting with audiences and that sort of thing?
2: Well, probably one of my conflicts and that is brought out is I did not like the theme, handicap makes good. Mm -hmm. Most of my life growing up, if you brought up the subject of my site, I'd get mad at you and i have done i've done dozens and dozens of television interviews uh, across the country at different times and when they would bring up that subject you can and they have clips in they there they do yeah you can you tell you can tell that i'm ticked or, or i'm or i'm doing everything i can not to punch their lights out
0: and that you have every right to be because they're so uh, it's it, Almost. it's disgusting honestly <laughs> thank you
2: and, and so uh so i had you know, you know, so there was that, if you want to call it a, a conflict, if, if you want to call it that, or just part of who I am that I did. I wanted my stuff to stand on its own merit. Mm-hmm. And so I denied, if you would, the fact of my, my side situation. And, and, and partly it was because it was for your benefit. People uh, give you, for instance, this guy, he's wanting to fight, fight me. Okay, we're fighting, and I'm kicking his butt. And he's about 12, about, you know, he's, uh, he's, uh, about 40 pounds heavier than I am and about three inches taller than I am. So he's a heavyweight against my middleweight. And every time he it, I would drop down, sweep around, kick his back leg out from under, jump on top of him, and pound him. And, and, and finally, he, he takes off his belt and says, Master Turner, will you train me? He said, I knew you had no forward vision, and I was purposely f- trying to find your hole and, 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 and hit you in that area where I knew you were vulnerable. So he openly admitted he was trying to take advantage of a poor blind kid <laughs> who beat the crap out of him. And uh, but that, So that was another reason, and the same thing on the pool table. Um, you know so yeah, how are you going play poor i'm going to kick you up you don't stand would whip in you know, <laughs> other areas so it was it was partly of course yeah, yeah yes i'm an arrogant
0: s o b um <laughs> you're the definition of a show off,
2: and I'm i mean sh- that so
0: lovingly <laughs> uh, i yeah,
2: i am the definition of a show off and uh, there you have it and uh <laughs> um but i i would uh i did i just didn't want someone to to uh, think that they had it over uh, or that I was less than them, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And so I and I always trained so hard, so I was, you know, I put I made it so where, I put it, I don't know if that not over them, but I just overcompensated, and I would do the craziest things. So I'd climb thousand-foot cliffs and a split mountain, you know, climb, pushing. The, uh, of course, you know about swinging on trapeze, wrestling a seven-foot uh, shark off the. Mo- ra- ca- uh, Mexican waters, uh, south of San Diego, you know, shark hunting, um, all kinds of things. I just did a lot of uh, crazy things, but I always <laughs> had to push the envelope because you know, whatever someone said they they're, they're going to do, I'm going to do better, and I'm going to take it to another extreme. And uh, and and partly it was because of my early years not wanting to deal with the the vision situation. I don't even want to use, even as I talk to you now, the blindness. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say that word. I don't like that word, and it took me years before I'd use it, even say that word. And uh, so that's really the part of the, the conflict. And then as, um, as my vision slowly went to where I lost it all, mm-hmm. then that I had to wake up because now I went from what I call... Uh, uh, a, abled disabled person to a or a, a dependent disabled, uh, de- independent disabled person to a dependent disabled person. That's probably a better way of saying it. Mm-hmm. A dependent disabled person to an in a, a, uh, independent disabled person to a dependent disabled person. In other words, before that, I could walk alongside of somebody and I wouldn't have to have them touch me or me touch them without running into something. You know, I could see enough to... To walk along, walk along, walk along with my wife, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's that started going away. And uh, now all of a sudden, I'm running into things, and I'm running into things hard. My son comes up, uh, he, he said, he asked if he can go uh, uh, play with one of his friends down the street. I said, sure. He opened my office door only halfway, and then the doorbell rings, and I get up and I run full bore right into the oh. edge of that door split my head wide open. I'm literally pulsating blood as I stumble down the stairs to my front door. I open up, and it's his little friend. And he goes...
0: (laughs) You're just bleeding a lot. Oh, I'm
2: gushing blood. like a horror movie. He answers, because I'm just pulsating out of my head. And the little kid goes, is Ace here? I said, he just went down to your house. And then that night, I go over to his house, and his mom says... Carlos went and knocked on your door and he said you were just pouring blood out of your head. <laughs> and and I said, Well, yeah, the they said left my door halfway open and you know I just ran full bore into it and just split my head open. And so that started happening more and more and one of the funniest times, and I'm gonna not embarrass my wife because she doesn't get embarrassed, but uh um she was sitting in her chair, and the phone rings. And I ran full board to answer the phone, and I ran right, course, square into the corner of a wall again. You know, block with my head to protect my hands, and again I split my head open. And this is her person, her personality, which I absolutely love. She looks up from her book, and she goes, "Now that one had to hurt." When you get off the phone, don't forget to wipe up the blood. See, in our family, we don't. If she drops a, a a fifty pound weight on her toe ah we don't oh, oh are you okay we don't we don't pet uh, that's not the right word we don't coddle mm-hmm. each other we're we're all karatekas. we're all uh, black belt my wife's son's a black belt my wife like i said she has three black belts i'm a six degree black belt you know so we we you, we've learned you you just take it and and you just fight you know, you, you don't you don't let yourself go down because of a mere 50-pound uh, weight falling on your foot or a door cracking your head open or, uh, or 250 pounds of weight driving your head into the concrete floor below, which happened to me. Um, anyway, so now all of a sudden, you know, I am realizing I can't even get along without someone along my side. And that was a, a step in my life that I didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I was told... Years before, and I didn't even, I didn't even remember this until we were, when they were interviewing me for the film. So I didn't tell Kim about it because I didn't even remember it. It was told to me when I was back in my er, late teens. They said, you will eventually lose all your sight. And, I, and my, my thoughts to that doctor was, you're full of crap, except I didn't use the word crap. And uh, I said, I have what I have, and I'm not giving it up. And so I just totally did not accept it. I thought, I thought, that that's not going to happen. I'm not. Period. That's not that, I, And it wasn't until the filming of this movie that I remembered that I was told on more than one occasion that you will eventually lose all your sight. And uh, anyway, so then you know, uh, I, uh, my wife Kim, she's uh, she's the angel of all angels, and uh, we've been together 27 years. And just for the record, we lo- love each other just as much now as we did then. Every element of what makes a good relationship has only continued to flower. So all those out there that think you can't have a good relationship after 25, 26, 27 years, it's not true. Treat your life wife like a queen, and she will treat you like a king. And I don't worry about her treating me like a king. I just treat her like a queen, and she's my queen. But anyway, she's the one that really got me to get over myself. She said... Stop. People want to help you. Let people help you, you know, because I didn't want to be helped. And uh, and so I would, uh, you know, I just wouldn't accept it. And it took me a full year before I realized that there was nothing left because now we're going to get off into another area. See, we have a lot of time to kill here, so <laughs> I'm going to get off into another whole area. Do we have time? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, it's I have a condition called Charles Bonnet Syndrome, CBS. It was first documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet. And a Charles, and Dr. Oliver Sacks, he's a best-selling author. He just died last year at 83. He has a book called Seeing with the Mind's Eye, the Mind's Eye, another one called Hallucinations. And he's probably done more studies on CBS, Charles Bonnet Syndrome, than anybody. And I'm probably the most extreme case of CBS in the, uh, that, uh, that, that anyone knows of. And to explain what Charles Bonnet syndrome is, it's a condition where a person who has lost their sight still sees colors, patterns, shapes. And most of the other cases, they might see a swiggle or some swirly thing come and go where I see my subconscious in external space. In other words, everything that you see in your mind, like when you're sleeping or dreaming, I see in front of me, like you would see on a, on a movie screen or like you see when you're looking at me right now. Yeah. I see it in front of me. And I, I live in what I call two basic spectrums, the red spectrum and the blue spectrum. And uh, the red spectrum, I call it the analytical, the critical, the left brain part of it. Because everything is in geometric shapes. And uh, always in the background is in right now. It's a a complete square grid. Other times, it's laid out like a bricks, Mm -hmm. where they're oblong, and the and it's the mortar is always a maroon, and then the bricks are always you know just a red, and uh, and that's the background. And inside of all these bricks are just circles, shapes, triangles, every type of geometric shape you can imagine. And in those things are every subconscious image that you can imagine. And it's not three-dimensional; it's all two-dimensional, <coughs> but it's all vividly colored. So I would I would see um, uh, just anything: stop sign, motorcycle. Girl, my favorite is my beautiful wife in her bikini um, from years ago. Um, and uh, so, and, and it's all layered la- uh, images on top of images, layered. The blue spectrum is I think, the more artistic, and I'm in the blue spectrum probably. 70 to 75 percent of the time. You, the red spectrum is not as predominant. And I think the blue spectrum is probably more artistic, the right part of the brain and that's because everything is in sweeps of paint. if you took a paintbrush and did strokes from the roof to the floor and it all it starts with royal blue to, let me just look at them. royal blue to uh, blue to turquoise blue to sky blue to emerald green. Uh, light green, grass green, to a uh, to, uh, lime green, and, uh, and they're just you know, random uh, strokes like with a brush. And then once again, in front of all that is multi-layered of, once again, every subconscious image you can imagine. And like, for instance, like if, I, if I go in the swimming pool, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's the easiest way to kind of look at it. Just picture yourself underwater. With the light shining in from, uh, from above, the sun shining through the water and floating in the waters, everything, fish, of, just all, instead of fish, just every subconscious image you can imagine just floating and moving around, and all the colors are not dull. They're like the cells from a th- movie theater, you know, where they have the cells above for the, where the, you know, the reds, blues, yellows to put the mm. lighting on yeah. the actors yeah, to yeah. give them certain types of color. That's the way the colors are. It's like their their cells, where the light's shining from behind, and they're extremely vivid. The colors are just absolutely beautiful, and so the world I live in, I absolutely love. And just to give you a little, give you a little history on the, how that started, you know, it started off with that black hole, as I mentioned, and then as that black has my retina continued to degenerate. And to where it, the whole retina was destroyed, that's the, those the, where the images were in the center part. My high school bud Jim Blowers from 50 years ago he called it my F.D. He gave it the photo, photographic display is what F.D. was his abbreviation. What it meant. And uh, and at that time I called them ophlers, (laughs) you know the things that I saw because it was like a flower with a circle around it, and it was very basic back then. But as the years went on, it it became more and more elaborate, and encompassed. And now it encompasses my total 360 degree field of vision. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm bringing that, saying all that, and and just to give you an idea of what I can do, is like I'm I want to design a deck for for our house. And my wife Kim can tell you, I'll just sit in a, a chair and I will watch in three dimension and in full scale. Uh, you know, I'll watch okay. I need to have four by twelve foot beams going vertical there. They have to they want to go they wanna go across, you know, you'll watch me turn three full half all halfway around as the sixteen foot beam will then cross over and be anchored here, and I'll engineer the whole thing in my head and then I'll build it. And, uh, and I will not use a single piece of paper, and yet I just did a thousand cuts, you know, and I tell my dad, okay, this, one has, this board has to be 192 and a quarter inches long, and we built this three-layer, three-level deck, built-in furniture, hanging swings, stairways, and everything without a single piece of paper, and all just uh, like a giant zig- saw, jigsaw puzzle put together, and try, I, I couldn't tell Kim or my dad, what I was doing because you can't explain a thousand cuts. I would just they would just watch it come together. But that's a kind of a for instance of what I'm able to do with this uh, thing. And then uh, one of the simplest things is like I can write in the air, just like you'd write on a chalkboard or mm-hmm. a computer screen. I can write in the air. I want to remember a phone number. I write it down in the air, and I will see it float in the air just like you'd see it on a computer screen. And I have what's called an eidetic memory. I tick, 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 take a picture of it, and I never forget it. But sadly, now that I'm getting older, my um, my uh, being able to recall that isn't what it used to be. Unfortunately, so I used to you name a number or anything like that, I'd have it just like I, I could just bring it up. Now my 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 uh, things are fading faster than they you know, I'm getting old, but um, uh, so anyway, now I'm bringing all that around big circle to where. <laughs> Uh, I'm running into things. And, uh, and before I could move my hand across my face, for those that can't see what I'm doing, I'm taking my hand like a pendulum on a clock and i move it back and forth across my face. And I will see an image, and it's not, it's not a flesh and blood looking image, mm-hmm. but I would see uh, like a hand going back and forth. Now I close my eyes, I see the exact same thing. All the colors and patterns and and in image are just as vivid. If you block me in a vault where there's not a bit of light, the reds and blues and greens and yellows are just as bright and as vivid if there's absolutely no uh, source of light as they are in a, in the daytime. So anyway. I always i I would move my hand across my face. Hand, well, now my eyes are closed, as I'm doing it because <laughs> when now my eyes are open or closed, it is all the same difference. And so I finally realized I can't. What I'm seeing is only what my mind is creating. It was not real anymore, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's when I realized, oh my gosh, there's nothing left. And of course, I, mm-hmm. as my wife says, I. I was stubborn, and I was going to deny it, and I did. You know, I just, you know, I was just bound and determined, and bam, another split head open. I wanted to get something. I ran, to uh, I ran, 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 and I ran right into a brick wall, and my head, was, uh, was totally half my face. Was the size of my nose, and was every color under the sun, and, and they had Kim said you're going to the doctor on this one, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, but anyway, because but I ran full bore into a brick wall. Um, anyway, so um, um, anyway, so uh, these things started happening, and I started going okay, and she's going, let people help you. People want to help you it's okay to take an arm and uh so i have to say i did come up with my own arrogant way of getting around because you know i'm still obviously a prideful person and uh and uh so when i walk around like my son i don't take an elbow i say put your right hand on my left shoulder and we're, it's a video game i can feel where people were go, So they drive me like a video, like a car. Mm-hmm. They have their, their right hand or their left hand, depending on which side they drive me from. So they Kim's ambidextrous, Ace's mm-hmm. ambidextrous. So they put the right hand on my left shoulder, as a, for instance, and they just slightly push forward. I go forward, pull back for stop. Fingers go left, left, right, right. And, uh, and so whenever I'm with somebody, that's how I get around with guys. Now Kim, because we're in love and because we're husband and wife and we can touch each other, mm-hmm. um, we hold hands and I can feel her mind, you know, some, uh, you know, I know when we can, you, we can walk through a concert with whatever, with people everywhere mm-hmm. just swarm it and we won't touch a single person. Nobody will have a clue that I did not see because of, I can just feel her mind through her hand as we're weaving our way through a minefield. And, uh, uh, but the only thing is, I, where I do need want heads up are stairs. So I don't mind falling upstairs, but I hate <laughs> falling downstairs. And uh, can't uh, say I blame you. <laughs> and, and I know from experience. I was getting ready to do CBS this morning, and uh, uh, David Rubin was the executive was the producer of it. Of it and that, where he's coming over, and I'm going from my home gym into my office, and I was on the, on the second floor, and I had a deck of cards, and I'm checking out this deck of cards. And I walk in, and I step with my left foot. There's nothing there.
0: Oh, did it Uh-oh. happen in slow motion? <laughs> Stairway,
2: slow motion. I'm now tipping over sideways. Oh. And my, you know, I do a, and I, I knew immediately tuck. I tucked, tucked my chin in, tucked my hands in. And my first landing was on the side of my head, the left side of my head. So I did a full flip. Gosh. I landed on the side of my head, flipped over again. Went sideways, flipped over again, and then I finally stop. And the first thing I do is, am I alive? Yeah? My arms still work? Yes? Did I drop a card? No, I didn't drop a single card. (laughs) And and then uh, David Rubin, the producer of the the show, he goes, don't do that again. And if you do it again, wait till after we film your piece. And... uh, so anyway, my point about that is, uh, you know stairs, especially going down escalators, uh, I do ask for a bigger heads up on that just because now i'm too old to do that anymore. I can't handle any more falling downstairs and uh, and uh, you know I just, my body my body has had its wear and tear, and
0: there you have it <laughs> <laughs> and do you feel that um, do you feel that you are? connecting with people on a deeper level or communicating something greater than card mechanics now that you're doing something that's a little more authentic and vulnerable? and
2: uh. Yeah, you know, now I'm, uh, you know, I, I hate to put it like this, but you know, I'm, so, I, I'm so old, and I'm not that old, I'm 63, but I just don't care. And if I can do something or have something said about me uh, that will encourage or inspire others, I, as my as my wife Kim says, get over yourself. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it is what it is. Deal with it, and uh, let other people are inspired by it. You know, just you know. So you can ask me anything you want. Say whatever you want. Um, it doesn't bother me like it did in years past. Um, so the and that's one of the story arcs that they managed to uh, unfold within this film, and it was because of the. Time that they took over the course of a number of years, and and actually caught a lot of this you know, evolution, uh, and uh, and so it, they they tell they tell they tell what everybody says is a very strong, compelling story.
1: Yeah,
0: it's it's really beautiful. Um, we've been going for almost two and a half hours. <laughs> we did it. I know, isn't that crazy? How did we do that. It feels like no time. Um, so just a couple of kind of. Uh, not really a lightning round, but some quicker questions okay. uh, just to one, sort of wrap the one thing up. One word answers, here we go.
2: No, not one <laughs> word answers,
0: <laughs> but um, a friend of mine was curious about how you became the, quote, touch expert of the U.S. playing card company. Oh, yeah,
2: the t- yeah touch analyst for USPC, U.S. playing card company. It uh, started in 1998. They uh, started subcontracting their paper. They denied it. I proved that it was right. They said, I crew out. I did a bunch of things I showed them, and they went back and they said, You know, we have to admit, you are right. We have been doing it. We hope to have it back in the house. It was because they had big management changes at that time because of the unions and stuff. And in 1993, they changed their cutting, cutting process. They started cutting the cards uh, the wrong direction where the blade went through the Uh, back of the card instead of the face and that Mm -hmm. puts the sharp edge on the face which makes a non-user friendly deck when you're shuffling cards because any type of shuffle you start at the bottom and you work your way up which means you're with the rounded side going with with the grain if you would where if it's the other way around you're going against the grain and the cards bind up and the casinos were all ticked the dealers they didn't know what the problem was but they were getting complaints from the dealers in the in the casinos going something's wrong with these cards and then I'm the one that identified that problem and then they changed it uh, for the casinos, and then uh, they finally said, "Put them on retainer." So they put me on retainer about 20 some, 20 years ago, or so. And um, and they make the best cards in the world. There's nobody that's even even close. And, uh, and uh, but um, yeah, Lance Merrill, who was with them for years, and uh, and uh, he just I would he would send me uh, decks of cards in like a dozen at a time. And uh, they would be all be pairs, and I would have to uh, analyze which pair. I'd have to match up each pair, and then maybe the only difference in two of those decks was a different chemical they used. Then I'd have to analyze what I thought about and how the deck lasted. And mm-hmm. and they have they do have very precise measuring devices, but they found my fingers uh, were more precise than their than their devices. And so that's kind of how I how I got on board. And now they're all. Uh, you know, they're all wonderful people and they're, they're just a great organization. I'm pleased that I can help, help all the magicians out there have a better <laughs> deck of cards because. We, we thank you, Richard. <laughs> yeah, because it's, our, as I said, this is our instrument. You know, We don't play a violin, we play a deck. We want a good instrument. We want a areas. We do not want a Chinese knockoff.
0: Absolutely. Um, do you have any unfulfilled goals that you're working towards?
2: Do I have any unfulfilled goals? Um, just little things that I do uh, for myself. Like I said, this particular shuffle um, is a goal that I have that if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it's just my own for myself. But everything that I ever imagined or hoped to do, somehow I've managed to do. And I have to say, when I was 38 years old, I said, I've already had more than my fair share of blessings, and uh, and uh, I, you know, but yet the the blessings keep coming, and uh, so I'm, I don't know that, I I always, as far as goals that I haven't fulfilled, let me just put it another way, I look at everything, it's as, as the journey, enjoy the moment, I would tell the director of the film, you know, because he was, there were times where he was really working hard, I said, enjoy this process, because once it's done, you'll have your product, but You've got to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the step. Every moment that's happening today, forget about tomorrow. It's gone. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's not here yet. Enjoy the moment.
0: It's beautiful. <laughs> it, and I, it, that, that, that deeply resonates with me, and I, I think that's amazing. Uh, the final question that we usually finish on is, uh, when was the hardest time you were ever fooled? Hardest time I was ever
2: fooled. Well, um, uh, there were, it was times with uh, Vernon. Um, he, he did this one thing, and he showed me how to do it. Where he would just took a shuffle deck, and then he, he flipped over each of the four packs, and each time he flipped over, there would be an ace there. And uh, uh, I, 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 I remember him showing me how, how he did it, and it was very, very cleverly done. I, <laughs> I, I don't remember it now. That was 30-something years ago, 35, 40 years ago. I don't know. Um, that was one of them. Uh, oh, Steve Forty did something that I, 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 of course, I know how tricky we can be with each other. <laughs> so I think he was being tricky with me. But he took a, a deck, and he, he, was tell, he was telling me it was like a C shape. And he reversed a card in there. And it's like a C-shape, and he could feel it. But the thing is, where his skills really did uh, shine is, I don't think that it was a C-shaped deck, but he still could track that card. And
0: that, was, that was, is amazing, totally amazing. Well, thank you so much, Richard. This has been uh, amazing, and I can't wait to go to the screening for the film again tonight at the castle. Yeah, oh you can be there? Yeah, I'm going to go. All right.
2: And then uh just so I, you go to doubtmovie.com and uh, follow the cities that it's opening in and they're adding new cities every day. It's right now scheduled to open in 21 cities over the next uh, 3 weeks or so. And uh it will also be available on iTunes and VOD, video on demand, and it'll be broadcast IFC Sundance Selects is the distributor of the film. And uh and they're just they're doing some amazing things, and you know, next week we open in New York. Um, and just, uh, yeah, just Deltmovie.com is one of the ways you can follow it or just Google it, and, uh, and uh, you'll be able to keep track and find out where and when it will be playing in your area. And if it's not, you can, there's all kinds of ways of being able to get it and watch it.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Richard. This is amazing. It's such a pleasure and an honor, and uh, I can't wait to see the film in a, in a room with a group of people.
2: Oh, that's right. With a group of people rather than staring at some little uh, iPhone and saying, Wow, what was he doing there? (laughs) Can't believe people watching films on on an iPhone. My son does it.
0: (laughs) It needs to be seen on a big screen, especially with that 5K footage. Oh, I know it. Exactly.
2: You got to appreciate all the effort and work that these guys put in and pay attention to the scoring. And something really cool, Michelle, this lady, Michelle, she does what are called. audio descriptions. Oh, cool. And so this, this film is user-friendly for the visually and hearing impaired. I got to hear it. She just finished doing it, and she, her last film was with a very major uh, uh, producer. I won't mention his name, so I not permission. But uh, she, did, she loved our film so much, she did it uh, as, a, as, a tr- as a gift to us. And so every all those that are visually impaired, you can get headphones at the theater, and, uh, and you'll be able to hear all the parts that the other people are experiencing through sight. And it really, for me, it turned it in from a two-dimensional experience, only audio, into a three-dimensional experience within my, 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 my mind's eye. So that's something very cool. And it's a new, new technology, and, uh, and it's becoming more and more popular. But anyway, so it also has audio descriptions in there, which is very amazing.
0: Wow. Well, yeah, I encourage everyone to see it. It was uh, powerful and moving, and uh, I loved it. And I'm definitely going to purchase it when it comes out. (laughs) Thanks, Richard. Well, thank you,
2: Elliot. It was really fun. I can't believe we killed two and a half hours. I know!
0: We did it. did a great job. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Magical Thinking and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next
1: Thursday. Cheers.